astronomers even meth heads if you're if you're watching welcome (laughs) maybe this is you know the beginning of a new day for you you're straightening out your life you're watching mythical astronomy live panels not going to do meth anymore thanks swapping myth for meth or meth for myth (laughs) absolutely yes it's much safer and joining me today are all sorts of friends uh and partners and content creators and folks that we know and love uh, and since he's already spoken up, I will start with Aziz, History of Westeros. Say hello. Hi, everybody. Yeah, it's uh, it's me again. I'm back and happy to be here. It's really fun to discuss new material. That's one of the best parts of being in this fandom. You know, we get a bit of that with the TV show week to week, but this is uh, a higher quality than the TV show. I think most of us would agree. Um, and there's just, and even if you don't, well, there's just way more of it. So we get, at least we have quantity. I'd say we have quality and quantity. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to tearing into this. This is my first time getting to discuss it with anybody uh, outside of my own social circle. So yeah, thanks again. Let's do this. Not only are we getting the Virgin Aziz take, it's also Aziz's birthday. So let's all say hey. happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. Happy, Thanks birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. We do thank you for joining us on your birthday. That is very flattering. Happy to have you here with your first fire and blood take. Uh, and joining me as well, I've got Storm Emma, Archmaester Emma of the Red Mice at Play blog. Say hello. Hello, uh, Archmaester Emma here. Um, I have left my camera off to hopefully stave off the underwater robot voice this week. Hello. <laughs> Yes, uh, under the sea is fun as a symbolic metaphor, uh, but not so much as an internet connection. But uh, yeah, hopefully uh, it sounds good so far, so we'll keep our starry fingers crossed for you. And next up, I have Melanie Lot 7. Say hello, Melanie. Hey, everybody. It's Melanie Lot 7. How's everybody doing? Are we ready to talk fire and blood? Because I really am excited about this. Yeah. Melanie, I, I really appreciate you um, wearing your uh, Valerian wig because going Targaryen today. Yeah, I had mine on and it was already itching the out of me, and I just was like, no, <laughs> just got a haircut. Hey, I came prepared. I came with fire and blood. Mm-hmm. You you have a good like sort of I don't know maybe like a Visenya kind of a look right now. It's it's really nice. Thanks. Yeah, and by the way, Visenya quickly vaulting up the ranks of like favorite Targaryens as becomes one of the most three-dimensional characters from history. Uh, We'll talk about that as we go, but uh, say hello. Last and certainly not least, perhaps greatest, bringing the visual element. Greatest. Yes. Well, all of us talk, you actually bring beautiful pictures to us. So say hello, Sandrixian, Hand of the Dragon. And Mallory Starshine. Mallory Starshine. Thank you. Rider of Zulfric, the Black Beast. (laughs) Uh, titles, titles, titles. Hello, I am Sanrixian. I am super hyped because I got a bunch of dragon information and I've already corrected LML once annoyingly about dragon genders. So I'm going to talk a lot, hopefully, on this panel. 
And uh, for Aziz's birthday, I gave him the choice of which dragon he wanted to see. And we're going to get a Silverwing and a Vermithor with their riders. Oh, yeah. Woo! How romantic. How romantic. So <laughs> uh, I thought it might be a fun way to go. There are so many ways to come at this. There's so much information. I thought it would be fun to go do a little bit of a round robin thing and just take turns having everyone put forward a topic to discuss and then we'll all sort of kick it around a bit and then we'll go on to the next one. And uh, that way everyone will get to bring up the things that they, uh, you know, stood out to them the most. And we'll obviously be looking in the chat as well, which I don't even have up. I guess I should pop that up. <laughs> um, hold on a second here. As I watch myself from five seconds ago talking. Hello, everyone. <laughs> We've got over 100 people here already. We got a super chat from Mara Lee who says, happy birthday, Aziz. Love the costumes. Thank you. Thanks, Mara. Did I miss any super chats uh, before I pulled this up? Guys, let me know in the chat if I did. I did not see any from earlier. I don't think so. Very good. Very good. The ritual 666 and 420 super chats will be along shortly, I am sure. Uh, So before we jump into that, uh, I just wanted to real quickly say a word of thank you. Uh, It was Thanksgiving this past week, and I was reflecting on how thankful I am for our community in general and, of course, my patrons as a whole. And I've seen a nice steady increase throughout the year in in my patron support. In particular, earlier this year, there was a YouTube kerfluffle where I got demonetized for a couple months, and I had by far my biggest YouTube or my biggest Patreon surge right after that. I feel like everybody came out to support me and that was really like it was so much like the youtube thing was a letdown but the support that i got was 10 times more encouraging and so i came out of that like actually more pumped and more encouraged and that was essentially all thanks to you guys coming out to support so i just want to take thanksgiving to say thanks everybody and you know we say thanks a lot but it really is true that this starry wisdom sunday and my podcast and all the fun stuff that we do it wouldn't be happening Uh, without the Patreons funding me to spend the time to do it. Because it does take a lot of time, of course, to research and prepare and uh, shop for banners on Etsy and and buy wigs and things. I mean, it takes time and effort. And uh, I, you know, I'm a working man, just like everybody else. And I wouldn't be able to dedicate this much time to it if it wasn't, you know, helping to uh, pay the bills and and feed my family. So I just want to say thank you to everybody. Um, I've, I'm sure you guys have noticed there's been an increase in the amount of podcasts that have come out since about halfway through the year, since I got back from Con of Thrones. I've been doing more live streams and more scripted episodes and Between Two Weirwoods, and all of that is possible because of you guys. So just want to take this moment to say thank you, and you guys are awesome. And it's, you know, sometimes it, I get discouraged for this or that reason, and uh, I just think about you guys and it makes me feel good again. So give everybody else a chance to say something mushy real quick before we dive into fire and blood um aziz you've got probably a similar situation as me you've got a lot of patrons um so why don't you go ahead and go next and sure um yeah it's uh it's this is the uh, you know it's good to be thankful all all year long obviously but this is the time where we as a society kind of make a point to do that uh out in the open and i always this is thanksgiving is my favorite holiday and having my birthday always fall like right within a couple days of it every once in a while it's on the same day as thanksgiving and so that i just love this time of year um and yeah it's it's wonderful to to think back and and how this all started 
how it started for each and every one of us is a different road. You know, we all got to this fandom through different ways, although there's probably a lot of similarities there. And it's just so much fun to think about and and uh, and to remember all the fun people that we've met along the way. And absolutely, I definitely would not be able to do this without the support of the community. And I'm super thankful because it's just, you know, like I said, I'm here on my birthday because I really enjoy doing this. And so being able to do what you like for a living is just uh, indescribable. So um, I'm full of thanks and uh, will continue to be, I'm sure, because uh, the community is going to continue to be the way it is. And it's, it's continuously inspiring and, and fun and, and supportive and uh, couldn't ask for more. Yeah, and I love the fact that we have like several patrons in common too. That's, that's really <laughs> that is really neat. Yeah, <laughs> and speaking you. of, I've of course I'm, I've got my uh, you you know what my uh, ring rod and mask are made of. Actually, I'm gonna have to get the ring uh, remade because for my birthday I ground it up into a uh, a coffee line and just snorted it. So <laughs> I'm gonna need a new one. Aziz, Aziz's starry wisdom title is the Black Maester whose rod, ring, and mask smell of coffee. That is his <laughs> Yep, well. So, oh, well, by the, the way, cat. yeah, there's one of our kitties. Yeah, we just had people asking for the cat, and there it is. We also have, um, if we should probably mention uh, why Amanda's not here, I just realized. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. So Amanda is under the weather. Um, she had something come up. She is going to the doctor to get it taken care of. Uh, she's not dying, but please do extend her. Well wishes. I'm sure she'd appreciate that. Um, she'll be on the men soon, but she's not able to join us, unfortunately. Um, but I will take a minute to say that she just did put out a new video. And of course, we're talking about Crow Food's daughter from the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. And her new video is about the Silver Sea. It's very short. And it's essentially, it's just taking the uh, gathering up all the evidence. And here it is, approach to the Silver Sea theory. Uh, and the Silver Sea, of course... Uh, is a legendary inland sea that used to occupy uh, some some portion of the Dothraki Sea. Uh, and we don't know how big it is, but it's said that there was three lakes that are left over. And those three lakes might be the two in Sarnor and then the womb of the world, which are really far apart. And if that's the case, it means the Silver Sea is huge, like covering like almost as big as the entire Dothraki Sea or maybe as big as half of it or something like that. And she's basically just gathered the evidence and presented it uh, you know, and it's it's really awesome. I love this theory. It's one of the fun things that came out of the world of Ice and Fire. And uh, what's also cool is that there's a lot of references to the Silver Sea and the Fisher Queens in Danny's Dothraki Sea chapters, which are written in the first book. So it shows you that Martin had a little bit of an idea about the Silver Sea and the Fisher Queens, even when he started off as far as the background mythology, even though we didn't actually find out about them until I think the world of Ice and Fire. So that is, uh, I see the link being dropped in the chat. Thank you, Melanie Lot 7. So just a quick shout out to Crow Food's daughter. We hope you feel better, Amanda. And everybody go check out the video because it is fun. And actually, my next um, Mythical Astronomy scripted episode will be more uh, Danny stuff. And of course, my last one had a lot of the Dothraki Sea symbolism stuff. So good timing on Amanda's part. In any case, uh, Melanie and Emma, I uh, want to give you a chance to say thank you and also go ahead and tell us what each of you are working on as well. And then I'll come back to Aziz for that question. So Emma, go ahead and go first. Tell us what you've been up to and say thank you to somebody. Um, so um, I am still working on the Red Fire essay, mainly because it's ridiculously um, 
complicated in that I need to weave about 15 different threads together and make it somewhat comprehensive, uh, comprehensible rather. So that's what I'm still currently working on. Um, I want to say thank you uh, for giving me the first opportunity to say thank you. Uh, it's my first Thanksgiving thanks because Britain doesn't do that. Um, and also to the huge, um, like just amazing opportunity to participate in the sort of a song of ice and fire community um some of you may or might not know this but um, i have depression and so it is um a joy to be able to interact with you guys on a day-to-day -day basis um and it's you know sometimes some of the very few bits of joy that i get in a day so um just wanted to say thank you to everyone for for that oh that's very sweet emma um, you know, I am coming at the thankfulness aspect of it from a pretty similar standpoint. Um, for me, the thing that I'm most thankful for is the fandom itself, because I found some lifelong friends and um, I just really could not have connected with these people without A Song of Ice and Fire and this fandom. And um, yeah, they bring me joy every single day. So that's definitely what I'm thankful for. And getting to interact with all of you is just a dream come true. I love sharing my passion for A Song of Ice and Fire with everybody. And the fandom makes it a reality. And by the way, I have a new essay out. <laughs> the thing that I finally, finally, I've been talking about it for a long time. I finally got it out. I have a King Under the Mountain essay that's available on my WordPress site. And hopefully I will be working on the YouTube version of it really soon. So be on the lookout for that. I'll drop some links in the chat. Yeah, and the the king under the mountain uh, is one of those um, myth themes, as I like to say. It's a class, you know, like the world tree or the the fire of the gods. It's a it's it's a well used trope, and uh, it, it it's <laughs> <There's> uh, a lot. <laughs> basically, the dragon locked in ice is one of the primary like symbolic incarnations of that idea. And, and I I spent like almost two whole series talking about the ice moon and the dragon locked in ice symbolism that applies to John and the others and all that crap. So. Uh, Melanie's I've been talking to Melanie this morning, actually, I think, I think we're going to actually do some sort of collaboratory roundtable thing where we get some of the myth heads together to actually discuss this topic because Melanie, I, I read your essay already and you're even, you're just scratching the surface. I mean, it goes there's so far. So, so much. Yeah. There's, there's things in a song of ice and fire that I didn't even touch on. Cause I didn't want it to turn into this like enormous, like, you know, 10,000 word essay. So yeah, there'll be a lot. And if I could probably speak up for everybody and just second what Emma and Melanie said, I think the fandom really does a lot for a lot of people, you know, whatever we're struggling with or, you know, just the regular stress of life, man. It's so much fun to come together uh, and with all of our friends and, you know, even meet some of you guys at cons and become real life friends as well as just Internet buddies. But uh, these live streams are great. You know, we all hang out. We got our little community here and see each other in other people's live streams. And I think it definitely brings a ray of sunshine. So we don't need to go on and on about it, but big group hug, tons of fun. <laughs> we all love it. So Sanrixian, uh, give me, uh, I know what you're working on. You're working on that calendar um, and a couple other things, but uh, yeah, to give us uh, say a word of thanks and, and give us an update on what's happening. Well, I mean, um, kind of same as Emma, I'm pretty open about my anxiety and my depression. And just lately within these last couple months, I've been going through a lot of really rough personal stuff. And everyone in the community has just made me feel like a superstar and like 
I am so validated. So just thank you to every single person who comes to these YouTubes, who tweets at me, who retweets my art, who says, that's a nice picture you drew. Because really, like, that just warms the depths of my soul. And thank you, Lucy, for giving me a platform to draw things on for people. And uh, thank you, Aziz, because I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you. You retweeted one of my very first things that got me some notice and... Melanie, I love you. You know that. Emma, I love you. You know that. So I'm just thankful for everybody that this community has brought me. And yes, the calendar is in the works. I have filled all of the months. It's getting ready to be um, formatted and printed. There's a lot of formatting for calendars I did not foresee. But yes, that's what I'm working on. (laughs) And there will be a bunch of prints available in my shop new prints soon. So. Nice. Well, the chat is alive with Sanri. You are a superstar. Oh. Comments and indeed Absolutely. you are. Don't make and me of course, cry live. Oh, I can't see you, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll only hit the. We'll only hear the pitter patter of the raindrops falling <laughs> as they drip onto my microphone. <laughs> All right. Well, before we gross everybody out with too much uh, sappiness, let's gross everybody out and talk about worms. Uh, yes. no, no, we're not going to get to the worms yet. No, no, can't. We got to save the worms, but we will. We will talk about that. Can I say one more sappy thing? Absolutely. Okay, so um, you, it was mentioned that many real friendships, a couple of y'all mentioned many real friendships and relationships come from this fandom. Well, I just want to say that uh, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy got married yesterday. Speaking of people <laughs> who, who came together Whoa. because of the fan, they met on Westeros.org forums and their podcast formed on those forums. And so, and yeah, yesterday they... Uh, tied the knot officially so i bet you half the chat is all like i knew it because they're not that makes me so happy i'm so happy they don't really they posted it on they did yeah they're 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 private about it but they did post it on social media so i figure it's okay to say so (laughs) well that is awesome congratulations to yoke boy and lady gwen on behalf of all the myth heads in the chat i see the chat going crazy yeah a lot of people did not know they were a couple i did know that but they keep it on the dl so, uh, yes, not only are they a couple, they're now married. It's the cutest thing ever. It's adorable. Put all the emojis in the chat. It's ridiculous. It's yes. It's also it's, a bit of a triumph because it's really hard to he's he's uh, he's fully immigrated now. He got his green card and all that. So don't 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 ever let someone tell you that immigrating is easy. <laughs> it's, it's so not. not. <laughs> it took like 18 months for them with like huge amounts of money. They had to hire an immigration lawyer and all this stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't need to give away all the details, but yeah. It, hearing about that process was was like wow. I'm yeah, so happy. That is that is really awesome. Uh that's what can we say? Nice nice job guys. It is tough. I um when I met my wife, she was living in LA and I was living in San Francisco, which is about a 7-hour car ride apart and we did long distance dating for about seven or eight months before you know she moved up and we moved in together and stuff so they were dating across the pond which is even harder so yeah Yeah. gotta tip the cap to that it's that's true love right there so all right well (laughs) (laughs) so many onions today Jeez. Okay, Paras- parasitic worms. We're here to talk about parasites. <laughs> Drives those tears up quickly. Like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so actually, real quick, uh, before we get into some of the heavy topics, I I had some quick hitters that I wanted to toss out. Some real quick hitters. Uh, and in fact, let's see here. Uh, in particular, 
Yeah. So I here's a, here's a good one. So there's a potential Sandor parallel called Sandok the Shadow. Yeah. <laughs> now this is towards the end of the book, so I don't know if everyone got to this, and we don't need to be to talk about it a whole lot, but. Lyseni's swords guarded her day and night, and this is Lara Roguer, under the command of her brother Moredo and a towering mute from the fighting pits of Marine called Sandok the Shadow. And he's a uh, dark-skinned, it might be a Summer Islander, but he's got very dark skin. Uh, he's got uh, no tongue and no lips, so he's like, you can see his teeth all the time, and he like bit somebody to death in the fighting pits. And he has this scene where he stands on the bridge and defends the Red Keep uh, when some traitors are essentially trying to steal the throne. And he kills like seven or eight people uh, by himself. And it's so like, badass. Well, yeah, dude, it is. So I was just wondering about that. Is this like, uh, what's the potential Sandor parallel here? I mean, if he's dark skinned, why doesn't he just burned? Mm. He could be like Makoro. Yeah, could be. Yeah, he, since he's a mute, illiterate mute, it's probably his backstory couldn't couldn't have been explored too much, probably. But yeah, I mean, Sandok, Sandor, it's literally one letter different. And George has done that kind of thing before with parallels like Sir Duck and Sir Dunk, who have a ton in common. Um, and yeah, and, and this guy is about Sandor's size, maybe a little bit taller. And he's, yeah, he's defending a young, a person that's about Sansa's age. So, uh, well, if you, if you're counting, talking about Viserys and, uh, Aegon, not, not, uh, Lara Roguer, who was a little bit older. She was more like 19, but still a teenage, a teenage girl, woman. He's and, defending uh, like all four of them, really. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. It came out that they were going to frame, uh, Aegon for, for the, uh, the Roguer's crimes actually. So, um, so you look well, out for any scene with Sandor on a bridge or something like that, where he's defending a narrow path, something like that could be, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I've, even the mute thing makes me wonder, because Sandor's on the quiet aisle, like, will he take a vow of silence or something like that? Um, it could make sense. Um, oh. Also, he's got a huge black sword, doesn't he? Yeah, um, which I think cool. so. Yeah, it was like a kind of, it reminded me kind of of Kago Corpse Killer's Valyrian Steel Air Axe, sort of. If Sandor got his hand on a Valerian steel sword. <laughs> Watch out. All right. Um, I didn't and, make it oh, that far. Sorry. So that's why I'm kind of like, Ooh, my gears okay. are turning. But <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot else to say about it other than, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. I guess we could maybe go back and study it a little closer, but essentially um, there, you know, the, Aegon III is in his regency at this point. He's not of age yet. Uh, and him and his brother and their two wives are in the Red Keep itself. And the people that are supposed to be the uh, the uh, the council, what do you call the council? The regency council, they're essentially making a power play uh, to sort of swipe the throne. And so it's a little bit of like the king is under siege in his own Red Keep. And they don't have many people to protect them, but they have this guy, Sandok the Shadow, who just comes out and kills like seven or eight of the of so- soldiers that are trying to storm the bridge by himself. It's like Incl- totally- including knocking several of them into the into off the bridge under the spiked uh, the spikes below. So in a very Mortal Kombat like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's some it's really something. <laughs> so yeah, which sword would it be if Sandor got a Valerian steel sword? So he's on the Quiet Isle. Think about it. What's floating around there? 
All kinds of things wash hmm. up on the quiet aisle. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there's um, it, it, I don't, I can't think of one that's super close by, but you never know if you know. There's some of the ones that were mentioned in this book are are not in a song of ice and fire and are considered lost. You never know if he decides to bring one or two of those back. Um, could be rediscovered somehow, like the the Royce one, lamentation, and uh, heck, the the Lysine one, uh, truth, like. That one seems pretty unlikely, but you never know. Well, that could be the whole point of creating a Sandor parallel to this guy who's a Lyseni floating around that sword. So, And okay. they did mention truth yeah. a couple of times. I don't know where it would be and how Sandor would get it, but just a loose yeah. thread to throw out there, I guess. And so here's another stupid one. Um, this, is, this is even more stupid. So people, want, people worry about the others walking around the wall, right? Well, like, well, if they freeze the ocean, maybe they'll just walk around at you know, Eastwatch, right? So check this out. Cold and hunger carried off a third of the Night's Watch. And when thousands of wildlings walked across the frozen sea east of the wall, hundreds more of the Black Brothers perished in battle. Remember that when there was that argument at the beginning of season <laughs> six where people were like, no, it looks yeah. the sea is frozen at the intro. And people were like, nah, that's not that wouldn't happen. Well, it wasn't. But apparently it could happen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I, that's exactly what I'm referencing. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> There's the foreshadowing, people. It's written in the stars. That whole scene, that whole that whole winter is very foreshadowy. Like I think that was the win is that that's the winter of 130 to 135 or whatever, or 136. That's super nasty. That's the one you're talking about, right? Um, uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of and there's another one from 230 to 236. It's like the same exactly a hundred years later. But uh yeah, super foreshadowing. All that, all the people starving, all the people turning to cannibalism, all the people sending all the northern warriors going south, all that stuff. We're going to probably see, maybe without the northern warriors going south part, because that's already happened, but uh, all the other so, stuff. So, okay, that actually reminds me of a serious topic. So let's talk about the winter fever. Emma, I saw you unmute yourself. You got something to say? Uh, I was just about to say that the um, the two hard winters that we see in the books are both accompanied by illnesses that are freakily cold symbolizing goodness so yeah that was very yeah, poor word. <laughs> there was the winter fever and then what was the other one oh, the shivers <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and and daenerys uh, is first born uh, da uh daenerys dies of the shivers which sounds like almost like two on the nose for Danny becoming like a night queen or something. Is that too obvious or? It's super obvious. If you, if you, if you consider that the family tree was retconned to make Daenerys the firstborn, that was not yeah. the case in the world of ice and fire. It's a change. There was a different kid born first. So they see George specifically made it a Daenerys in retrospect. So it's really, it's so on the nose. We can't, we can't think otherwise, I think, because he specifically changed it to, to be a Daenerys. And then, wrote this scene where she dies of the shivers it's like wow yeah so i'm totally with you <laughs> hey it just occurred to me that i missed a 24.99 super chat uh, a few minutes ago i followed it away when someone was talking forget to go back to it and now i can't scroll back it was mara lee again i think yeah it was Marley. okay thank you i was hoping somebody would know thank you mara and also sean e with the 420 ritual super chat thank you sean e that was I my thank you uh, Steven Stark did. He sent in the 666 Super Chat. Uh, yeah. And also, um, Steven, just to just to let you know, he is on the mend, he says. He's continuing to heal up. Yay. Yeah, a little, Excellent. A little back issues and some illness earlier this month. Some of us pitched in to, uh, to help him get through that. And he said, thank you very much. 
so yeah, the shivers. That's it. Like you said, Emma, it's really weird. We get these magical illnesses. George really seems to like magical illnesses. We've all been wondering what the hell he's doing with grayscale. I think it's going to be something. I think it's going to be something really similar. I think I have thought for quite a while that grayscale is doing something weird, symbolizing the others. Otherwise, why are the wildlings quite as terrified of it as they are? Um, So. Um, I just think this lends credence to it. And then weirdly, it also becomes the third major illness that we know about coming after a winter, if I remember correctly. Um, Although maybe I'm not because there's the sweating sickness. But is that after a winter? I'm not entirely sure. I'll defer to Aziza's superior (laughs) (laughs) knowledge there. Sorry to drop you in it. (laughs) I think that's correct. But yeah, having only read the book once, I definitely haven't locked all these details in yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the line that popped into... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sammy. No, no, go on. I was just going to ramble a bit more, so feel oh, free to no. talk to Okay. The line that immediately popped into my head when I read about the shivers was from the ice dragon, and it was about mm. the cold was inside her, and I was just like, oh, no, the cold is inside all of them. Yeah. That's all. Um, no, the, the cold was inside her is, is an, I think, an important line. I think that's definitely some foreshadowing, like Aziz was getting at. And this is all, it's important to note that this this scene with the Shivers comes right, I think, right after the discussion of Targs and their immunity to diseases. So it's really quite striking that it's presented in a way like it's it's very inf- like informative. He's like, he tells you very specifically, yeah, we do have evidence. It's the first time it's really been laid out for us. Before it was like a suspicion because Danny did go right in the midst of the pale mare and never got sick before as well. So there was some evidence, but it wasn't strong evidence. It was just circumstantial. Now we have it just laid out like, yes, Targs do have immunity to disease. And as David said, the difference might be magical diseases are where they don't have the immunity. So if the shivers is magical or associated with the others or anything like that, that's huge. Same thing with grayscale. Grayscale is clearly magical. I mean, turning the stone and then stone, man, like that's a fantasy disease, right? <laughs> so check yeah. this out. Check this out. Ravenous Reader just found this crazy quote. Listen to this. The thought of drowned knights under the water gave Bran the shivers. He didn't object, though. He liked the shivers. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Good find. Wow. That's so good. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense if you think about the shivers as some sort of magical embrace of ice magic or the things of the north, like Bran could definitely be headed for some sort of thing like that. Um, maybe not turning into an evil Night King, but we have seen like Cold Hands, who's animated by ice magic and yet plays on team life. Uh, and I've talked about John possibly being some sort of ice and fire white. I've talked about the good other symbolism that we find. Uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe somebody will embrace the shivers. Also and, speaking of go, go ahead, Aziz. I, I was just one sentence. I was going to say, this is, this is that time where we have to look back over the whole series for references that George has expanded on here in fire and blood. And that this looking back to see references to shivers is, a perfect way to do that. <laughs> to add on Absolutely. To the, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mel. You had something. Just real quick. Um, going back to the grayscale, I noticed that Septa Majel, who is the Targaryen, died of grayscale. She had grayscale in her arms and her legs, and that was her cause of death. So one more uh, notch against Targaryen exceptionalism. Well, yeah. and grayscale was created as a curse against the Targaryens by Garen the Great, according to legend. So it's specifically tied to 
uh, targs. And I think that is where I came about to thinking of, to seeing that they are symbolizing others because you have, they were who the Lords of fire basically get drowned and turn into cold stone men. So it's very much like that sort of fire to ice transformation symbolism. And they're doing it through the water, which sort of fits with the whole idea that the weirwood net is this, you know, medium where things can go in and become transformed and come out the other side a different way or something like that. So, yeah, I'm on board with that. That's the best take I can have on the stone men is that they symbolize others in some sense. Um, but I, I just wish I knew what George is going to do, like literally with it, with the plot. Like clearly Grayscale is coming to Westeros. Shireen might be carrying it. You know, like what's going to happen with that? What's What role is it going to play? I don't know. It's definitely one of the biggest mysteries. It's so clearly going to matter. We got a patient zero yeah. in the north and the south with Connington, and all this 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 ex, this extra material in fire and blood. There's a lot of talk about diseases. There's a lot of it in the world of ice and fire as well. So yeah, and then and then there's the pale mare, and then all this other stuff kind of setting it up. So uh, you wonder if others have some sort of power over it. Like, is it's like, could they have power over death? Is uh, if, if you have a mortal disease, is that somehow like a connection? Or if you have grayscale in the brain, can you can they control? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really hard to like figure out what's happening, and that's fun because we're pretty good at figuring out a lot of what is probably going to happen. But you know, and and, and high point, and this is a, such an obvious thing that's coming, but we have no idea how it's going to play out. So Sanry, you had something you were going to say. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to add to what um, something that stood out to me. Um, I have to read George's words, which is why it's taking me so long to go through this darn book, because I'm like, wait, that makes the wait. And then you start doing all the connections, as you guys all know. Um, but he, he um, I think it's on. Yeah. Let me look at my notes here. Page 193. He uses italics twice. And he says the Targaryens were different and they flew dragons which just stood out to me because he um, the whole quote is all this, the exceptionalist affirmed, but with this caveat, the Targaryens were different. Their roots were not in the Andalos, but in Valeria of old where different laws and traditions held sway. A man had only look at them to know that they were not like other men, their eyes, their hair, their very being all proclaimed their differences and they flew dragons. So it's like something about that, that stood out to me, like in addition to them having, um, apparently protection against these illnesses where George is just straight up telling us they were different. Like sometimes like it's as, I feel like it's as simple as taking those words in that context and being like, okay, what does this mean? Does that provoke thoughts? <laughs> it provoked thoughts in me definitely about like where they are, what the exactly um, the nature of the relations to dragons were um, what, exactly it is about targaryens that makes them different and i mean i think it's the dragon blood and the dragon bonds obviously which well we're we're totally throwing out my proposed format but whatever that's that's a good topic actually so so let's uh okay whatever no no i'm saying that's well uh, that's a good topic to raise up so uh well let's go with that so there's a lot of information about uh the tar the blood of the dragon what does it mean how did it get that way we definitely get some clues about that in Fire and Blood. Um, and I, th- I thought that was definitely a good discussion topic. Um, the worms definitely give us a clue about that. But before we get into the worms, um, I thought it was interesting. So we've got, okay, we've got the dragon babies, right? We already know that Rhaenyra has a dragon baby. Danny has a dragon baby. Megor has a couple. 
Aziz, I was trying to remember. Is there another one? Yeah, there's uh okay, so Megor has a few. There's um obviously Danny and Rhaenyra, and um I believe there was at least one more new one in this story that I'm forgetting though. I forget who was whose it was, but I think there's I think that so I think we have at least four examples, counting Megor as one, where really he's multiple. Megor has three malformed babies. Ooh, and, yep. um, we got sorry. And you can't blame that all on Tyana of the Tower either. I don't buy that. Not when we have so many other lizard babies happening. Yeah, a poison wouldn't do that, would it? I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> so the the it could be that like stress um or something, you know, extra influences on a targ pregnancy can lead it to go bad like that. Like Rhaenyra had her throne stolen from her while she was pregnant and was like raging about it. Uh Danny obviously had, you know, some trauma going on while she was pregnant uh, with the whole tent of dancing shadows. So she was basically subjected her pregnancy to sorcery um, as well. So that it could be something like that that could be induced, but clearly at least the seeds or the potential for it is something that's inherently built into the Targaryen bloodline, which leads you, which has always led us to believe that there is some actual like reptilian DNA uh, and then we get some new stories about Valerian blood magic experiments in this sto- in this book too, don't we? Uh, you're nodding your head, Melanie. Do you rem- recall what that was? Well, I was I was trying to think of the other um, malformed baby, and I, I don't think I got it. I thought it might be might have been Daella's because she was mm. under a lot of stress in the veil. She just um, but lost her baby. I think I think it was just a stillborn, and I just wanted to just really quickly mention that there's a lot of talk about how some of the babies are strong and hale and hearty, and some of the babies, in fact, kind of like the majority of the babies, are weak and frail. tiny and frail. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Hmm. So this uh, this whole topic of blood magic and and engineered species is right up my current alley, so to speak, because we just did uh, 36 hours ago, we released Nymeria Part 2, which involves, which we talk about Gagasos and Sothorios. And one of the things about Gagasos is um, it was a city of blood magic. It had, they did blood magic experiments. They did a created species there. Septon Barth speculated that the Valyrians engineered dragons from worms and wyverns. Um, they wouldn't have necessarily done this at Gagasos because Valyria was well established by the point Gagasos was founded. But uh, we get the, expanded on that. And he talks about, he uses the word chimera for some of the things that, like some of their a generic word to describe the creations that they make. And an anecdote I love relating. Uh, there was enough on this topic, by the way, that I didn't put it all in Nymeria 2. I, I state during the episode that we have to, that I'm going to do a bonus episode because there's just too much of it. And since Nymeria and the Reinar don't, directly interact with it they just kind of set up shop near it which was by itself a little strange but uh that aside it's too much of a topic and not quite related enough to what the roy and i were doing so i think that's gonna be a lot of fun and just lo and behold right as i'm working on that topic we get a lot of new stuff backing yep. it up so this really fun anecdote i have to relay real quick is i watched one of elio and linda's videos a, quite a while ago maybe a year or two ago about some things similar to this and they and I mentioned the idea of these hybrid species, and they responded with something that they didn't mean to respond with. Elio responded with a bit about sphinxes being a creation of the Valyrians. Those aren't just statues. They made sphinxes. And 
I said, oh, well, we didn't know that. That's cool. And, blah, blah, blah. He's like, and so I think he didn't mean to give that away. And I went back to look and find that comment and he's since deleted it. <laughs> my oh, comments are still there. Like my response is still there, but his comments is gone. So <laughs> that's really I don't interesting. Have a but it's it's an admission that they made that the Valerians made sphinxes. So, and in some of George's other work, and it's one of the tough voyaging stories contains a tale of of engineered species in fighting pits. So, I think that the Valerians probably bred some of these creatures and sent them to the fighting pits for entertainment as well as for other nefarious purposes. But anyway, so that's the kind of stuff I'm going to get into with that episode eventually. But uh, that was really neat to see them get into, to, to bring, give us more info on, on that cool topic. So here's the quote, and this is going to lead us into the worms, but this is, uh, it says, um, what befell her on Valeria? I cannot surmise judging from the condition in which she returned to us. I do not even care to contemplate it. The Valerians were more than dragon lords. They practiced blood magic and other dark arts as well, delving deep into the earth for secrets best left buried and twisting the flesh of beasts and men to fashion monstrous and unnatural chimeras. For these sins, the gods struck them down. Valeria is accursed and it goes on and on. So there's just, yeah, like you said, more confirmation. They were definitely creating human-animal hybrids, as George Bush famously once said in a very strange State of the Union speech that was perhaps a little bit ahead of his time. Uh, <laughs> Human-animal hybrids, uh, we've got to gotta stop them. So, uh, yeah, the Valerians were doing that. Uh, yes. so, Thoughts, ladies? Yeah, that's, that's, what dragon, that's what Targaryens are. That's what dragon riders are. They're human-animal hybrids. Good ones. Speaking yeah. of human-animal hybrids. More human than animal. Go ahead, Mel. <laughs> Speaking of human-animal hybrids, um, something that I noticed happening a lot uh, in reference to young Targaryens was a lot of Child of the Forest language surrounding them. Um, I noticed that there was, um, sorry, I've got it in my notes. I'm so bad with the names that I'm just like, oh. Um, Dayala was nicknamed My Little Flower, which makes me think of all of the Children of the Forest flower names, also Craster's Wives. Um, and she's taken to the veil, which is kind of like a hollow hill. Um, and if the idea that we have about uh, children of the forest being impregnated and dying in childbirth because they're trying to give birth to babies that are too large for their bodies, that's basically what happened to Daella. And um, there was another one of the Targ children who was a cupbearer. Was it Rhaenyra? Oh, my gosh. Um, can't remember. Anybody know? But one of the Targaryen children, like as a child, was a cupbearer to um, whoever was in charge at the time. And I just noticed that there was a lot of child of the forest language attached to them, which that, which kind of too, surprised yeah. me. Mm. Yeah, That's it was cool. especially with the, the smallness of a lot of Alisane's kids. Mm -hmm. Like they were either super hardy, like you were saying, or super small. But um, Dela, um, I think it was maybe, was it Viscera who was so small and so weak that she died? Um, gosh, yeah, there, there are a lot of new names. There's yeah, a couple right, of uh, Aegons that, that died very young, too. I yes. think Viscera is the one that had the drunk driving accident. Oh, yes. yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. She was <laughs> the party girl. Yeah. She By the way, there's the, the, the Sarah, the Viscera, and the Magel combined are the story of Illyrio's Sarah. Yes. You have one, you have the running off to the pleasure house thing. Like Sarah was, you know, that's where Illyrio met her. So the one Sarah went there and then you have Majel dying of grayscale. And then you have Vicera having the, the spelling, the right spelling of the name S-E-R-R-A with the V-I in front. So that's kind of cool. 
Of course, uh, we kind of knew that from the world of ice and fire, but it was cool to get more detail on those characters. So that confirms the Fagon Blackfire, essentially, right? Or more, or we'll say more confirmation. Yeah, yeah. There's a, <laughs> maybe. There's also I, the whole. Go ahead. Uh, there's also the whole bit about the dragon eggs that uh, Alyssa's farman, who becomes Alice Highwell or something like that. I don't remember. Westhill. Westhill. Thank you. Mm-hmm. She takes the dragon eggs off to Pentosh, and there's a or pen. Yeah, there's a whole line of exchange between. Reyna and Jaharis and Jaharis's chambers about how some Pentoshi spice monger is going to have three costly stones. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, George. <laughs> that was surprising because I thought yeah. we had a clear answer for where those eggs came from. Because in the world of ice and fire, he points out that there's fossilized eggs that Ares had fossilized eggs. Like, oh, Varus could have just stolen those and given them to Illyrio. Simple Simon. But no, we get a much more direct reference. Yep. Um I found the quote about the other child of the forest and it was actually good queen Alisane and she was referred to as the little maid and the other daughter. And just like Val, she has blue eyes and honey colored curls. And it says she was small, but never sickly courteous, biddable with a sweet smile and a pleasing voice. And the pleasing voice definitely made me think of the children of the forest too. Yep. She's uh, later in life. She has snowy white hair and she has blue eyes instead of purple. She's called the other child. Uh, she closes down the night fort, and she has Snowgate renamed re, uh, Queensgate. So she's got a ton of Ice Queen symbolism. We talked about that a little bit on the Fly Alaric uh, live stream. Uh, so yeah, I th- I, we saw more of that. When she, you have, <laughs> I definitely Melanie. When I read that she was the other child, I was like, oh yeah, she is, isn't she? <laughs> Very mm-hmm. nice. That's cool. Um, and of course, Jaharis and Alisan had 13 children. Last which is like, oh, that's interesting. A little last hero math for you. One of them was named Daenerys. Okay. Hmm, very interesting. <laughs> uh, and then and you have, a, a, yeah, an Aemon too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's lots of symbolic children. Uh, of I, In fact, I found the Jaharis and Alisan section perhaps to be the best in the book. I really enjoyed that. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, just to go back to what Sandra was saying, this, so we know. Those are Danny's three dragon's eggs uh, from Alyssa Farman. Uh, so that's cool. And I want to I want to go back to Alyssa Farman and her whole voyage. That's a whole cool topic. Mm-hmm. But before we do Super that, cool. we were just dipping our toes in the blood magic thing. And I want to go ahead and open up the fireworms because that's really what it what it relates to. So yeah, we're going to open up a can of worms. Can I, uh, as we're going into that, I want to can I quickly say too one thing I really appreciated in this book was that there's been a long running a bit of misinformation that is that our own fandom is is responsible in part for propagating, which was the, which is dealing with the issue of uh, marriageable ages and childbirth. And George very happily set the record straight on a lot of this, which is good because it's, it's kind of a confusing topic. The idea of, of, of women getting married too young is, is uh, often mistaken because it's usually only the extreme nobility that do these really young marriages, like day-to-day commoners. Women usually wouldn't get married till they were about 20-ish, uh, and there's a ton of records to prove that. But uh, we have the Maesters and Elisan both saying multiple times that these women had issues because they got pregnant too soon. So I'm, yeah. I was really glad to see that. Yeah, that's cool. I, I did notice that too. Um, and they also made a distinction between, well, they're married, but they should wait to, you know, 
Yeah, uh, the, to have Harris and Alisane waited what like two or three years to consummate their marriage because they were young children. True love waits, guys. True love waits. Even though they had, even though there was a political reason for them to consummate it, which which is kind of unusual, but still they had a reason to be like, let's seal this up so they can't split us apart. But still they still held off, so that was that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, Sandra, real quick, I, let's uh, show us. Uh, I haven't checked in on your drawing at all yet. I see you've got the basic sketch, the yeah. bones of the sketch here. Drawing in oh. Harris now. I love the the dragons. I love how you've captured the idea of the dragons, sort of like flirtily, sort of touch, you know, rubbing on each other a little oh, bit as they fly and sort of intertwine. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's good. They dance, you know. I- <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. So we'll get we'll get to the worms in a second. But while we're looking at at uh, these two dragons here, it's interesting that some dragons uh, belong to a couple like um, Vagar and Caraxes before Damon and Aemond One Eye killed each other with those two dragons. Those two dragons belonged to a married couple, and I completely forget who they are at this point because the dragons went through a bunch of different hands. Maybe, maybe um, Caraxes was. Caraxes was Damon's before Damon's. It was uh, that the it was that one girl who didn't live very long, Alyssa. Uh, Alyssa, yeah. And then the um, Vagar was Lenor or Lena's, and before Lena, it was uh, there was the new one that we didn't. Oh, it was uh, Amon's. Yeah, it was Amon. Um, the so Amon who came the Aemon who was the heir to Harrison uh, to Jaehaerys and Alysanne but died before he could inherit. That was, I think uh, Caraxes and then Vagar went to his brother Balon. Oh, it was Caraxes went to Balon. Oh, Vagar yeah. went to Balon. Okay, cool. Right. Melee's Melee's the first writer of Melee's I think was Alyssa and they both had blood red dragons and they were called right. like the Red Shadows or something. I I literally just read through the part which is why weren't, I remember. Weren't they called the Bloodworms? The Bloodworms, that's it. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah, I got to reread over that one. So I guess my point was there's this moment where you see Vagar and Caraxes next to each other on the same team, essentially. And then you know that later they're going to kill each other. And it was kind of sad. I had this moment of like dragon sadness where I was like, oh, little <laughs> do they know they're going to rip each other's guts out. And then the tie in is that when, uh, when, uh, uh, who's, uh, Vermithor. The dragon of good mm-hmm. queen of, of King Jaehaerys, when he died, when Vermithor died on the battlefield, along comes Silverwing to to mournfully like try to lift his wing up to try to like you know as if like oh is he is he dead you know try to make him fly again Aww. and so you saw that the the bond between Jaehaerys and Alisande was strong enough to carry over to their dragons so it's just I guess my point is it's interesting in some cases the dragons don't have any problem killing each other even if they used to be friends. But in the case of Jaehaerys and Alisanne, that did carry over to their dragons. And you get the feeling like they wouldn't have fought each other, probably, you know? Yeah. No, they were they were very bonded. You have really? that other... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. They have that other scene where the in the Blacks and the Greens where it's it's mentioned that they the, the dragons of the Blacks and the dragons of the Greens would snap at each other and hiss at each other. Uh, so yeah, it's like dogs almost, where they just really channel their master's emotions a lot. It's like, but more powerful than that because there's also evidence that they can sense each other over long distances. It's like a third of the skin changer bond or something like that, like a weaker version of that, but similar to the dog human relationship with a little magic thrown in. <laughs> it's also um, there's a there's a part where I think Dreamfire descends somewhere near Vermithor and Silverwing, and Vermithor just 
screams like, hey, ants, dragons here. <laughs> ant, whatever, you know. Yeah, the dragons can sense each other's presence even before they can see them. We also see um, uh, a dragon sort of scream when its rider dies across the city. Uh, they're not near each other. I think it's when Rhaenyra, is it when Rhaenyra dies? Dreamfire um, screams, yeah. It would be uh, Jahara, yeah, Jahara, when Jahara dies, I think. Jahara dies, thank you, yeah. that's what it was, yeah. So there's some interesting information about the dragon and the dragon rider bond that's doled out here. And I continue to feel like, you know, especially as uh, we uncover more evidence that Azora High was trying to like break into the Weirwood Net or, you know, have, have a child with a, a children of the forest, Nissa Nissa, to create this dragon-blooded skin changer person, you know, kind of like John or Blood Raven or something. I really do think that the blood of the dragon bond might have been some sort of a mutated version of Green Sea or a skin changer magic. Because so there's a sorry, there's a question, a really good question from the chat related to this that's pretty relevant. Um, from Julie Best Style, she asks, "Is there evidence that the humans can feel what the dragons are feeling?" And I, and I don't think so. It seems like it's a one way thing. The dragons can feel the humans, but the humans can't seem to feel what the dragons are going through. Would it, does anyone have a any com- contrary evidence to that? Because that seems to be right. I wonder if there's anything about Danny when her two dragons are locked up in the pit. Does she does she tap into that feeling at all? But she's more she's closely bonded to Balerion, really. So, yeah, it's only Masande hears the scratching of of uh, of, of Regal or Viserion carving out a, a a cave there. But there's no, yeah, I don't think it's an emotional thing there. Oh, that sucks because there should be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like there should. I know, like uh, Reyna cared about Dreamfire intensely, and like, um, like I know that they cared about their dragons, and I feel like there should be. If it goes one way, I feel like it should go should go the other way. But maybe it's just not interpreted well or understood fully. Who knows? Maybe we'll get more info. All I can think of is kind of like dogs and people have a similar emotional bond but we can't smell the way that dogs smell it just doesn't translate yeah so. <laughs> yeah yeah i kind of feel like in the dragon pit when drogon's getting attacked that danny is tapping into that a little bit i'd have to reread mm. it to see if it's it being implied or not um that's a good question i haven't thought about that but it would be well masked if so because if you recall she's like really really overwhelmed before the dragon comes she just wants to leave because it's the heat yeah. and the blood and the stench and the flies she just hates it so much no, it feels more like it's the other way around where balerion yeah. is responding to daenerys's feelings and coming to her but mm. i just to be clear i'm not suggesting that it is the same thing as skin changing there's very clear differences it's a much more like faint sort of psychic bond um my idea is that the ancient valerians or maybe even a shy geodonian people who created the dragon bond used skin changer magic to do so and so it's like a mutated form of skin changer magic because if you remember some of the rumors that are around old town and battle isle and all that all that those clues about dragons coming there is that the ancient mariners came to battle isle to trade or learn from the children of the forest or maybe to enslave them. And so you get this idea of dragon people from Ashai, from the Great Empire of the Dawn, coming to Westeros to have contact with, um, uh, with, with children of the forest. And that's basically the framework and the backdrop for Nissa Nissa being a child of the forest. That's how it would happen, is through that interchange. So we've got rumors in the world of ice and fire, and then we've got our own sort of symbolic exploration that's both led us to this place that these ancient dragon lords that came before Valeria were trying to tap into green sea or magic somehow, and they came to Westeros to do it. 
And it's probably really fucking important because what is Jon Snow? He's a cross of skin changer genetics and blood of the dragon genetics. And that seems to be important. So thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I'm not right. sure I have anything specifically to add, but I, I totally agree. We, we have the other concepts uh, out there to sort of back this idea up, the, uh, the overlap of magic in other ways. Um, we have prophecy coming from, we have from multiple places. We have necromancy coming from multiple places. So yeah, why not psychic bonds with animals? Uh, yeah, it, it has a lot of those traits. It's clearly magical, but it's all, like you say, it's clearly not as powerful or as thorough as the relationship with skin changing but yeah the the this i think i think you're right because you think of like skin changing an animal um we've uh, one of the long-running fan theories is that bran will warg a dragon or not warg but skin change a dragon um but we've given we've seen many times that uh when bran tried to skin change into his wolf uh, and the wolf was hurt bran described it as like touching a hot knife or hot iron and is you instinctively just pull away from it and we've also seen pain and fire kick skin changers out of their bodies like when Vermeer's six skins was burned out of his eagle Mm -hmm. um so you think about brand trying to skin change a dragon that might feel the same it might feel like trying to skin change fire made flesh it might not work but if you're someone like melisandra or makoro or maybe Danny in the future, who's like transforming into like a fiery entity, but you have skin changer genetics, maybe that's how we create a blood of the dragon type of situation. So that's, that's where my thinking was going there. No, I think, I think you're right on. I think there's uh, this, the link between the dragon rider and the um, dragon is definitely more of a hereditary thing, especially in the fact that um, isn't it taboo in skin changing to like take another person's animal like the way Vermeer six skins would like take over other animals and he tried to take thistle and stuff or am i mixing up my myths well there's multiple taboos happening there but go ahead well yeah thistle skin changing thistles it's completely different taboo but the point was um you don't take another skin changer's warg so for what always was interesting to me was how the dragons could be claimed by other people after they were um, after their riders died like the, the dragon would never have the same rider while the other one lived but as soon as their rider died died like especially when i'm thinking of megor and was it well know. okay so so skin changers um yeah you're you're, you're getting a couple things crossed so skin changers Vermeer says that wolves and humans mate for life um but the thing is that after the the person dies other people can inhabit the same animal. Like a lot of the ravens um, in Blood Raven's cave have singer oh, souls in them, but Bran can skin change into them. Um, so, yeah, I was just yeah. thinking about the the bond um, between the dragon dragon rider being as like less um, less monogamous as the skin changer. <laughs> never, never mind. No, it's pretty monogamous. It's pretty similar actually, because just for the simple fact that. Once a dragon and a rider are paired, nobody else can ride that dragon. Right. Um, and we see the example of what happens when you try to. The dragon, like, tosses you off. Like, no, I ain't playing that. Yeah. So there's definitely enough parallels to make you compare the two. But um, let's talk about worms. So I've got the quote pulled up here. Uh, and if you don't like parasites and stuff, then this is going to be uh, some sort of trigger warning for you. But 
Okay, so let's go here. Uh, and I'm even going to share my screen because the picture is really good. This is the picture. And it is terrifying. It is fully terrifying. Uh, I got to scroll backwards to read the quote, but we'll, we'll get back to this in a second. So I'll hide this. So she, came, she comes back. Let's see. I don't want to read the entire, entire passage. But essentially, she, they, she comes. She's been missing for a year. She flew off on Balerian the Black Dread. She comes back a year later. And as soon as they land, she like basically falls off the dragon. She's obviously very sick, about to pass out. Valerian has wounds, uh, and she has some sort of fever. And then it turns out that she doesn't just have a fever, and it's not just more cowbell that will uh, heal her. So it says, um, mysteries, okay. Um, talking about people leaving letters. Okay, Barth wrote, it has been three days since the princess perished, and I have not slept. I do not know that I shall ever sleep again. The mother is merciful, I have always believed, and the father above judges each man justly. But there was no mercy and no justice in what befell our poor princess. How could the gods be so blind or so uncaring as to permit such horror? Or is it possible that there are other deities in this universe, monstrous evil gods, such as the priests of Red Velour preach against, against whose malice the kings and men and gods of men are naught but flies? And clearly that's a Lovecraft Cthulhu hat tip right there, just, just, just to point that out. And then he says, I do not know. I do not want to know. If this makes me a faithless septon, so be it. Grand Maester Benefer and I have agreed to tell no one uh, all of what we saw and experienced in his chambers as that poor child lay dying. Not the king, nor the queen, nor her mother, nor even the archmaesters of the citadel. But the memories will not leave me, so I shall set them down here. Mayhaps by the time they are found and read, men will have gained a better understanding of such evils. We have told the world that Princess Aria died of a fever, and that is broadly true, but it was a fever such as I have never seen before and hope never to see again. The girl was burning. Her skin was flushed and red when I laid my hand upon her brow to learn how hot she was, uh, and when I laid my hand upon her brow to learn how hot she was, it was as if I had thrust it into a pot of boiling oil. There was scarce an ounce of flesh upon her bones, so gaunt and starved did she appear, but we could observe certain swellings inside her as her skin bulged out and then sunk down again, as if, no, not as if, for this was the truth of it. There were things inside her, living things, moving and twisting, mayhaps searching for a way out, and giving her such pain that even the milk of the poppy gave her no surcease. We told the king, as we must surely tell her mother, that Aria never spoke, but that is a lie. I pray that I shall soon forget some of the things she whispered through her cracked and bleeding lips. I cannot forget how oft she begged for death. All the maester's arts were powerless against her fever, if indeed we can call such a whore by such a commonplace name. The simplest way to say it is that the poor child was cooking from within. Her flesh grew darker and darker and then began to crack, until her skin resembled nothing so much, seven save me, as pork crackling. Thin tendrils of smoke issued from her mouth, her nose, even most obscenely from her nether lips, which is a ridiculous phrase, nether lips. It <laughs> communicates the prudishness of the maesters very well. In any case, by then, she had ceased to speak, though the things within her continued to move. Her very eyes cooked within her skull and finally burst like two eggs 
left in a pot of boiling water for too long. Hello, Two Moons reference. Uh, I thought that was the most hideous thing that I should ever see, but I was quickly disabused of the notion for a worse horror was awaiting me. That came when Benifer and I lowered the poor child into a tub and covered her with ice. The shock of that immersion stopped her heart at once, I tell myself. If so, that was a mercy, for that was when the things inside her came out. The things, mother have mercy, I do not know how to speak of them. They were worms, worms with faces, snakes with hands, twisty, slimy, unspeakable things that seemed to writhe and pulse and squirm as they came bursting from her flesh. Some were no bigger than my little finger, but one, at least, was as long as my arm. Oh, warrior, protect me. The sounds they made. They died, though. I must remember that. Cling to that. Whatever they might have been, they were creatures of heat and fire, and they did not love the ice. Oh, no. One after another, they thrashed and writhed and died before my eyes. Thank the seven. I will not presume to give them names. They were horrors. <clears throat> and then it goes on to talk about speculating that she may have gone... Uh, to Valeria, uh, and then they talk about the fact that Valerion had a wound, which was like a nine-foot-long gouge along his side, which is kind of crazy. Um, it says, half-healed scars and a jagged rent down his left side, almost nine feet long, a gaping red wound from which his blood still dripped, hot and smoking. So, guys? I have thoughts. Yikes. Yeah, go ahead, Sanry. I pulled this as one of my uh, things I wanted to talk about, too, because the way the worms are described sounds way too similar to the way that Magor's um, twisted offspring are described and all of the deformed babies. And it's really scary. What the hell is in Valeria? That's just what I want to know. Like, what is out there that um, could hurt Valerion at that age? in his life and i feel like it's um it's more proof that something bad during or whatever happened during the doom of valeria um whatever remains there those creepy fireworms can live and those might be like dragons or whatever remains of the people or some kind of horrible intermingling of them and this is literally complete crack foil so please forgive me but yes I had a lot of thoughts that made me think a lot about the deformed children, at least. Well, so let's go in order because there's a ton of things to unpack here. But the first thing you said was that you compared it to Magor's baby. So do you, you said you have that quote pulled? Um, I had the quote pulled that you just read. But oh, okay. Magor's babies are described. Um, the first one, I think, has no eyes and malformed limbs. The second one has, like, no limbs and might have eyes. And the third has rudimentary wings. So they're all deformed. And, like, the snake-like language, snakes with hands is what worms with faces like they seem similar to the deformations. Like, well, and remember what I said about sphinxes and remember what a sphinx yes. is. A sphinx yes. has a human head and a dragon's body. At least a Valyrian sphinx does. There's obviously other types of sphinxes, but so that's like, that's what we're seeing. These are like very Valyrian sphinx. Like if they're half human, half lizard or half dragon, yes. which of course we already have some evidence of the Targaryens themselves being that way, but this just deepens the whole thing. Yeah, this really sounds like one of those attempts at creating the blood of the dragon that like went wrong. Like this was one of the failed experiments. At some point, they created this hideous parasite um, that now haunts Valeria. 
Um, it could be that all baby fireworms start off like this and that fireworms are like xenomorphs uh, mm-hmm. and they need human hosts to gestate. I tend to think not. I tend to think this is a slightly different species of thing, um, but that's purely just, you know, I'm just me guessing. I don't know, I don't know that that is the case. Um, some people are wondering if maybe Valerian didn't actually go to Valeria, but somewhere else like Gagasos or Sothorios, because Sothorios is full of parasites and Gagasos is where we heard about the very worst Valerian blood magic happening. However, I tend to think that it makes the most sense that Valerian did go to Valeria for just the reason that the maester puts forward, which is that dragons are known to return to the places of their birth. That's where Valerian was born. And if he was the one calling the shots and flying wherever he wanted to, that's the place that would make the most sense. There's really no reason for him to fly to Gagasos. We've never seen that he's been to Gagasos. It's just an island in the sea. So I think it's far more likely he went to Valeria. Aziz, I see you nodding your head. And Melanie, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> um, about Valerian about going to Valeria, there was a line really close by the passage that you just read that emphasized that Valerian was the last creature, last living creature to see Valeria. And like, there was a lot of emphasis on that. So that kind of pointed me in the direction of Valerian going to Valeria. Um, I'm kind of coming at it from a different angle um, and comparing Arya's journey and Arya's journey. I mean, their names are really similar and their personalities are pretty similar. Um, But I kind of like the idea of how Arya takes on the, fa- the faces of the um, faceless men it's, uh, and she can skin change cats and whatnot. So Arya is skin changing other things, whereas Arya is in a really creepy and nasty way being skin changed by things. So it's, they're kind of like flipped that way. And you have the whole, the faceless men were probably the ones to cause the doom thing too, yeah, which true. is, which is a nice little tie in here. If area had was, had to go back there. Um, also, you could say that this is a bit of a, a flip as to what we might expect from Arya herself. The, the longest standing piece of foreshadowing we have for her is that she will be found in the snow clutching her sword. And so, so if she's killed by, you know, extreme ice, which, that's kind of what happened. They put her in ice and then she died finally. Like she would have obviously died anyway. But I, it makes me think of Arya's foreshadowed end mm. as well. Oh, Mallory's got the quote for us about Balerion. And it says, Recall, if you will, that Balerion was the largest and oldest of the three dragons that King Aegon and his sisters rode to conquest. He is mayhaps. Oh, there's so much mayhaps. <laughs> the, only living, the only living creature in the world that knew Valyria before the doom. So. Not to use the show as a as a reference too often, but we did see Baler, uh, Drogon instead of going to Dragon Mount, his new Dragon Mount, like he did in the books on the Drathraki Sea. He went to Valyria in the show, mm. which is kind of neat. Although he wasn't born there. <laughs> so the other thing that these that these weird worms reminded me of is uh, one of the last Targaryen dragons that was born. Yep. So check this out. The first omen of the dark times to come was seen on Driftmark. When the dragon's egg presented to Lena Valerion upon her birth quickened and hatched. Her parents' pride and pleasure quickly turned to ash, however. The dragon that wriggled from the egg was a monstrosity, a wingless worm, maggot white and blind. Within moments of hatching, the creature turned upon the babe in her cradle and tore a bloody chunk from her arm. As Lena shrieked, Lord Oakenfist ripped the dragon off her, flung it to the floor, and hacked it to pieces. 
Uh, so this is, I mean, it's really does seem like George R. R. Martin is into aliens. Uh, the movie, yeah. uh, first of all, <laughs> There's a lot of horror uh, in this book in general, <laughs> but, but it just consistently, we see that like, when the whole human dragon thing goes wrong, you get various weird worm-like things from the dragon babies to the parasites uh, to this deformed dragon. There's a certain continuity of a feel to it. So that's, that's to me how I was viewing these parasites. So it makes sense to me that these are the types of things in Valeria. I picture Aria and Valerion riding, you know, they're flying through the air forever and ever. Aria's holding on for dear life, she's realized by now that this was a huge mistake. <laughs> and they sit down somewhere in Valeria. And what's she going to do? She's going to get off the dragon. And as soon as she does, she's at risk. If she drinks any water, she eats anything, she touches the ground. These kinds of nasty things are probably all over Valeria. So, Can I pose everybody a question? Please. Related to this, does this change your thinking on whether or not Euron went to Valeria? Now that we know it's actually possible because i think before we thought it wasn't even literally like you would just die from smoke inhalation or heat now we know that apparently it might be possible so that make that whole euron thing has to be revisited and you have to wonder about um euron's capability to protect himself with magic uh in a way that area might not have been able to Uh, and he might not have had to sail into the heart of valeria either but simply you know come to one of its islands but i still think it's entirely possible he didn't go there and it's oh yeah he's he's lying so it just it just makes it possible rather than we i I thought we could be like pretty sure he was like almost certain he didn't now we're like wait a sec maybe maybe he did um uh, sort of unrelated but sort of related is uh when we were talking about the shivers before it causes blue lips so thinking of your on nice <laughs> yeah that was one of, the, one of the descriptions of it is that, that lips turn blue i'm like oh hello <laughs> i think and, there uh, might be an interesting hint about the euron thing in that um area has blood eyes so she's got blood in her eyes ooh, like euron with a blood eye good catch um, so i thought at least linguistically there's supposed to be a symbolic parallel there if nothing else and area is very much a dragon locked in ice symbol when she's got dragons inside her like a moon and she's surrounded by ice and then the dragons sort of burst out. Uh, so that's cool. Um, she's heralded by three horn blasts as well. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I totally missed that. Someone else pointed out. I was like, oh, man, how did I miss that? Three horn blasts. <laughs> so Carol just dropped a $2 super chat asking about grayscale. You must have hopped in, um, I think, probably a little bit late, Carol. We actually did do a pretty good little grayscale discussion near the beginning. So I would say just listen back uh, when the stream is over and thank you for joining us. Hey, look at the number um, of people you got. Uh, yes. 227. Thank you, everybody. The, the attendance has been soaring lately. It has been climbing up and up and it's another thing that I'm thankful for. So I think having it regular really helps with that. I've noticed that you do like, you know, if you, people could count on it, they remember it ahead of time. It's kind of part of the routine. It certainly is for me. I'm like, Oh, Hey, it's Sunday. I mean, let me check out uh, between two weirwoods. It does make it easy. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to make it easy, guys. And, and, <laughs> and as we were discussing on Twitter, um, you know, the enthusiasm for football is like it's kind of gotten harder to get as fired up about it as it used to be with all the concussions and wife beating, yeah. being swept under the rug and some of the other ugliness, not to like change yeah. it totally. But yeah, it's fun to do something on Sunday. And the whole church angle is kind of funny. You know, start, we had the whole Starry Wisdom Church thing going on and you know, and, uh, Oh, look at the time. Uh, so in any case, uh, Melanie, 
tell me about what do you think, or I, this is another thing. Okay, so the worms here have an adverse reaction to the ice. And Silverwing, when Alisan is on Silverwing, not only turns away from the wall, but like growls at the cold wind coming off the wall. So is George like giving us some clues here that the dragons aren't just going to have this cakewalk and just march in and just roast everything? Like, what do you think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Totally agree. Thank you. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, there's no way after seeing that um, horrific thing with Arya, there's no way that the dragons are going to just be like popping in and roasting everybody beyond the wall. Um, it would be really interesting to see Daenerys heading to the wall, trying to help everybody, thinking that she's going to save the day. And then completely failing. Yeah, the dragons are like, no. Nope. <laughs> oh, Mom, I don't want to go over there. It's cold. Stubborn it was dragon. Also, we also got that but, from uh, Jace's dragon was also having trouble up there. But yeah. Oh, yeah, what was, I forget. What was that part about? I'm not Sorry, sure. I was coughing due to the time of day. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's, is it Vermax? Yeah, Vermax. Also, when he flew up to, to with the whole pack device and fire thing with Cregan, he... Um, Vermax is also hating the cold and and snapping and being difficult. So we have two examples of that. Wow, that's that really okay. So I'm 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 spawning tinfoil like right now in my mind. But is it possible that is it possible that aliens? No, not aliens. Um, <laughs> is it possible that the whole idea of Danny and or John? turning into a knight's queen and or knight's queen a uh, knight's king uh is it possible that that is something that they need to do in order to be able to ride an ice dragon to fuck the others up so instead of the tv show where knight's king rides the ice dragon maybe the ice dragon is what you actually need i don't know it's I'm probably too many layers of tinfoil but that well yeah but also you have uh well no go ahead my question my, my answer is a little off topic so go ahead <laughs> i was gonna say that dovetails really nicely with the idea of bran and the shivers and everybody thinking that bran is going to skin change a dragon um if there's three ice dragons being controlled by john daenerys and bran then yeah they might they might work that's, that makes sense i was gonna say I mean, that with uh the the idea of Danny turning into a, the Night Queen is is interesting because then it means if someone like John has to kill her, it isn't necessarily an evil act anymore. If she's been transformed into something, it isn't like you know the idea that Azor Ahai committed an evil act, which I think is a very valid possibility. In this case, it might not be if she's just turned like magically forced into being evil and like who knows spreading. Like I, I, I made a similar theory for Shireen. If Shireen just starts dropping grayscale everywhere if she's just a patient zero and spreading it everywhere they may have to kill her and it won't just be a sacrifice because stannis is you know there's bad weather stannis feels like he has no choice there may be a compelling reason specific to her that she needs to die because she has grayscale um and something could be you know maybe that idea applies to danny in this sense as well i don't know just a, definitely just a theory at this point Hey, we just we found all this symbolism about the good other, the idea that the Starks have some blood of the other, and yet they fight against the others. Um, you know, John has a lot of foreshadowing that he's going to be some sort of a more of a unification of ice and fire, not just a barrack. Uh, but you know, he has the burning sword, but he's armored in ice. 
You know, he's got he's got a constant juxtaposition of ice and fire. So I'm definitely curious to see what that goes. To me, the idea that one or both of Danny and John could turn into Knights King or Knights Queen, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be becoming evil. Because when I'm saying Knights King and Queen, I'm really talking about Ice King and Ice Queen. We've, you know, we have to remember Cold Hands is an ice white on the good team, uh, team life, if you will. So there's, you know, we, we might see John take on a Knights King symbolism, uh, but actually not be fighting for the others, but against them. Or it could be that he's got to become the Knights King to pacify the others and sort of take them back, like the whole prince that was promised to the others idea. You know, he's John becoming icy will pacify them somehow. So all those ideas are possible. And here's another thing that I'm even more sure of that's less tinfoily is that, okay, check this out. So in the show, John and Danny are knocking boots and they're going to have a baby, right? Well, in the books, we don't expect whited John to be able to have babies, probably. Um, probably. Danny's, Danny's ability to have a baby is also very much in dispute. Uh, it seems less likely in the books than it did in the show. So you have to wonder... Maybe they're going to have a magical baby instead, like a shadow baby, or they're going to create an other or create a fire other or some fucking weird thing like that. Like it may be that both of them, by the time they meet and fall in love, will be both semi magical beings at that point. And the kind of child they have is not just going to be a regular baby. Thoughts? Anybody? Magic baby. I like it. Uh, we've gotten yeah it might relate to some of this crazy weird you know we've been seeing all the ways babies can come out this might be sort of a a setup towards something along those lines but uh maybe not Mm, that's kind of tough well it sort of ties in so uh pablo's mentioning that some people think magor might have been actually resurrected by tyana of the tower after he was in that coma and he was unable to have any regular babies Um, i'm not sure if i subscribe to that but she definitely used yeah I have two. Th- I have two thoughts on that. One, Magor is a strong parallel to Gregor. Uh, not only the name sound; it just you switch the first two letters, Magor Gregor. But you have Gre- same thing. Gregor was supposed to be dead, and all of a sudden he's walking around doing stuff. You have, and you in this in both cases, you have a sorceress type person that took care of them to get them back. It's Kyburn or Tiana of the Tower, and in both cases they were like Magor was out for twenty eight days, and in both cases it was a trial by combat that put them in this spot in the first place so it's really rich with parallels plus you have um you know they're both huge they both were knighted early they're both brutal they both had an incident with a horse when they were you know (laughs) it's just like even little details like that um but backing it up to our blood magic discussion and engineered species discussion visenya was rumored to use black magic and if and we know that a really common result of mixing black magic slash blood magic with these this whole created engineered species things is that you create sterile uh animals like the you know we hear of this the ebony's mating with people and that's just they, they they create sterile humans like in real life you have donkey you have what are what is it mules that are sterile mules don- yep. yeah because it's a mating of a donkey and a horse so magor just might have been either engineered or resurrected and either of those things could make him unable to (laughs) procreate so yeah it's it's a lot of possibilities there i think it's both i have always thought the visenya did something magic to make magor 
Like, I mean, especially as she grows older and especially reading through the Sons of the Dragon chapter, they definitely added stuff for. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so much more like that makes me feel like he is something that is engineered from blood magic rather than he is something that is um, true and pure, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And it's Aegon's whole situation is weird with not having a kid till he was 27 and only yeah. having one kid with each wife, even though he like slept with Rainey's constantly. And then there's question. And then we have in the book, both books, World of Ice, Fire and Sons of the Dragon or Fire and Blood. We have the maesters and room mentioning rumors that Rainey's, you know, had lovers that may that have been singers. responsible for Aenys. Yeah. So Aegon the Conqueror might have been sterile, like <laughs> straight up. <laughs> so check this out. Check this out. I've got some super chats I need to get before I slip my mind oh, any yeah, further. Wow. Um, Mazamanti on topic says, let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not wear it like armor. So that's Tyrion's favorite, famous advice to John. Where is, so remember what you are, wear it like armor. John has ice armor. What is John? Ooh. He's ice. Ah, cool. Nice. nice. Thank you, Mazamanti. Um, uh, then earlier, Vorian Betterfeder gave a, a super chat of appreciation. Just says, thanks for being awesome. So thank you, Vorian. And Lauren S. says, Alice Rivers' new bits are pretty interesting. Yeah, they were. Alice Rivers is a very interesting uh, character. Um, so that, let's talk about that next. But real quick, before we change topic... Uh, here's another tinfoil since we're throwing out tinfoil today. I, it once occurred to me, Aziz, uh, that the black dragons might be a race apart from the other dragons. They are hmm. bigger, consistently bigger and more aggressive. And the, the way that Balerion is set apart from the other two is constantly emphasized. He's a loner, flies off by himself, growing bigger and faster. And so hmm. I wondered if maybe like, you know, the Great Empire of the Dawn seems to have been dragon riders before the Long Night. But I wonder if the Bloodstone Emperor being like the prototype for so many things of Valyria, especially if he's really Azor High, as I believe, and that, that whole blood magic ritual that created Lightbringer was part of him killing the Amethyst Empress and all that. I wonder if maybe like he sort of set the template for the Valerians by creating these black swords with blood magic and maybe by creating the black dragons uh with with because he was said to do necromancy and all the darkest sorcery and all that stuff so Hmm. maybe that's where that all started that human animal hybrid stuff um because they they basically like attribute everything to the bloodstone emperor that you can think of as far as like all the dark arts and stuff so we have have three black dragons is it three black dragons that we have so there's cannibal there's balerion and drogon and Drogon. And we nobody rides Cannibal, but he, he Cannibal's huge and monstrous and kills other dragons. Yeah. Yeah. I think you yeah, you might be onto something there. Yeah. So then the last clue about it is that everyone who rides black dragons might be infertile. Just what you said. So Aegon, it's rumored that Rainey's slept with other people. So Rainey's children might not be Aegon's. And he only conceived with Visenya. I'll give this to you, Melanie, next. He only conceived with Visenya because of sorcery, quite possibly. And then you have Megor riding the black dragon um, and Daenerys riding a black dragon and she can't have children anymore. Although those two things aren't necessarily linked. Um, but I just wondered about that. So Melanie, go ahead. I see you raising your hand here. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of dragon seeds, like just the word itself is kind of telling and dragon seeds are Targaryen bastards, uh, basically kids that are created by a Targaryen on a common person or like just a random non-Targ person. 
And it's said in the books that dragon seeds are children who are to be cherished and taken care of and are, you know, like the Targaryen exceptionalism, so special. Like the name dragon seeds got me thinking. And I think it works very well with this idea that perhaps Aegon the Conqueror was not actually, he was sterile and wasn't able to produce children. And that all of the Targaryens that followed from Rhaenys' line were, and maybe even Visenya's line, although that's like the black magic thing, um, are maybe actually bastards and don't have pure Targaryen blood. Well, definitely on Megor's line died out. Mm-hmm. He had no successors and no heirs. Yeah, that's true. And um, like they're just, they make note to describe um, Aenys when he's born as being like frail and thin and weakly. And then when Jaehaerys is born, they're like, he's so much more like his grandsire, like Aegon, like stronger and stuff. Yeah. So maybe in order to make a dragon, you have to plant a dragon seed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The dragons and trees uh, cross symbolism is, is, is just wonderful. It keeps on giving and giving. Um, So how about that one? Just as a silly aside, how about that one where, um, one of the Targaryen kings sat on a dragon's egg to try to hatch it. Literally sat on it like a hen. <laughs> so it's actually referenced a couple of times that um, the dragons are referred to as chickens, like because yeah. um, like it's about three times in in the books, and that got me thinking about cockatrices and and just more dragon cock talk, and that that made me chuckle. <laughs> cockatrices are they're like basilisks, like sphinxes, kind of. Mm. Yeah. Joe Magician, what are you saying about cannibal? Let me scroll up. I missed what you were saying. There's the mention of of cannibal being older than having been on Dragonstone before the Targaryens, which is dismissed as a rumor. Mm. Um, So probably not, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah. You know, you think, because I, I, I can, I kind of want to think that dragons exist naturally in, in, Planetos. I realized that they could have been created from fireworms and wyverns, just as Barth proposes. Obviously, we know the Valerians were doing crossbreeding, so that's possible. But I, part of me thinks it's very plausible that dragons are a naturally existent creature. Because if you have fireworms, why not dragons? They're just fireworms with wings. Like there's not, they're not right. any more magical. So <laughs> it's not that big of a stretch, <laughs> right? They could be natural, natural creatures. And then what, what the Valerians or what the Bloodstone Emperor did was he made, they, you know, at some point they created this blood of the dragon bond. They, they mingled the genetics of humans and dragons somehow in a way that allows them to bond, quote unquote. Um, and so I just thought that maybe part of that, you know, the black dragons are, are the result of an experiment because everything about them is so wrong. Like they breathe black fire which doesn't even really make sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, what is that? Black dragon like? hate here, Luce. Cool. Oh, I love black <laughs> dragons. What are you talking about? I'm I love them. Just... <laughs> Come on now. So, By to, the way... To... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, to add to your theory, I was thinking about the other riders of Valerian. We have Viserys, the first, who obviously had a lot of kids, but he wasn't really... It, it suggests that he never even necessarily rode Valerian because Valerian was still messed up from his trip with Area. And so Viserys claimed him, but he died within a year of that. Mm. So yeah, that's pointed out in the books, like that he only got to like write him up once and then like wrote him down and that was it. Yeah. So it, the whole, like it, it's sort of a thorn in the, in the 
they're all sterile, but barely because he hardly rode him, you know? So I don't know. It's still pretty much. It's I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty like out there theory. And, and I don't know if it'll ever come into play, but it's just where my mind went one time. Right. So. Well, it's not like logistically feasible, but it, it could be thematically like George could be written it that way on purpose so that like it, that sense i think it could fit really well right because the new we just was like who else wrote valerian oh this girl named aria how'd that turn out <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> uh so all right um uh emma let me kick it to you what uh bring up uh bring up a topic that you'd like to talk about and i'm going to click into sandrick's in a little bit as we talk so one thing I consistently noticed was Mushroom as a soothsayer of some description. Like everything he seems to say seems to have um, like vast amounts of symbolic importance. Um, and uh, oh, I've not got my passages to hand. Um, but there was one about um, like being ruled by a jester now and um, things like that. And I just wondered like what everyone's take on sort of the idea of, of an, another fool as soothsayer and mushroom as well being a dwarf potentially has like he's called mushroom which gives him children or werewood net symbolism um and uh being a dwarf he's essentially like a small statured person who looks older than they are and he manages to see events that he really shouldn't be seeing in the slightest so there's quite a lot of um sort of symbolism sort of around him and I thought that was really cool I think that's really interesting Emma because um, a, a couple of things like looking at Mushroom as like you're saying a soothsayer and having him privy to knowledge that he doesn't necessarily sh or should not necessarily have access to kind of makes you get a green seer vibe from him um and the small stature makes you think like hmm child of the forest and then on top of that, I I know that it's kind of been shared in our general circle, like with the you know, starry wisdom. But there's the idea of the um, the dwarf people that people see after ingesting. I think it's fly alaric mushrooms <laughs> and going into you know Are like you tripping about the self transforming machine elves. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just, yeah, kind of all of those things mushed together and mixed back around um, make me think of Mushroom. <laughs> I completely agree in terms of symbolism. Uh, that, yeah, he seems like one of those, you know, maybe maybe symbolic of a, a child of the forest human hybrid offspring who's sort of doing both things. But yeah, it's a lot of the same symbolism. Like Patchface has all that child of the forest symbolism too, um, he's childlike, but old, you know, he was a child that could sing and do magic. He's got the red and green motley. He's got the horns, um, you know, he's voice of prophecy. So he's got the whole sort of shamanic madness, you know, one ear into the spirit world sort of thing going on. So mushroom is less overt because he's not crazy. Uh, but what George is doing is he's using him as an Oracle because everything he says is highly symbolic. Like you said, Melanie. So that's really cool. Um, and just going back to the idea of dragons being a natural creature, KFA 4303 points out that the best proof of dragons being, you know, real animals, quote unquote, is that they existed over a broad time on Planetos. Supposedly, you know, we find dragon skeletons all over the world um, from ancient times, even in Westeros, uh, say the Maesters. So that tells you that, like, in some prehistoric time, dragons seem to have been everywhere in the way that dinosaurs were. Uh, so unless somebody's... Unless Jesus is hiding dragon bones 
you know, just in the way that he's hiding him <laughs> under Antarctica or whatever. Um, <laughs> so um, that's that Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. He's a good scuba diver. Um, so he's a good excavator too. In any case, uh, so that's a good point. And there was a, the tie into that was that uh, Sunfire, when Sunfire is wounded, one of his wounds starts to mortify and rot and his smoke even like smells all nasty and stuff. So the fact that dragons can become infected uh, and mortified like that kind of points to them being a quote unquote, you know, natural, cre- a magical natural creature, as opposed to just a being of pure fire, like the others are beings of ice or whatever. So what'd you think about that? There might be differences between the dragons that we know now and the dragons that um, used to exist, like, or that could simply speak to what the Targaryens did in order to bond to the dragons. Like, it could be more like a Targaryen-sided thing than it is a dragon-sided thing. As we were talking about earlier with the um, dragons seeming to be able to feel the Targaryens more than the tar- the dragon, or, sorry, the Targaryens being able to feel the dragons' emotions. That just makes me feel like there's more tricky blood magic shit that went on um, on the side of the Targaryens to make the dragons bond to them and to yield to them. Yeah, I think that's unquestionably the case. I just thought it was interesting that we saw the dragon's wound actually rotting because I don't think you'd see an other's wound like rot and like mortify, right? Like we haven't even seen them be wounded. Like they just drop into a puddle. (laughs) Either they're either unhurt or puddles. (laughs) Does anybody want to add anything on this topic? I want to get Alice rivers and then uh, Sandra's got a good idea here about Krakens. I want to get to also. I have just one very quick comment about I'm not as nearly as strong as y'all on detecting symbolism, but my one contribution was mushrooms uh, uh, relating his attempt to mount Silverwing and getting and having his pantaloons catch fire as a result. And all I could think of was that's a liar, liar, pants on fire reference. And in the text, the maesters doubt that this happened too. I'm like, yeah, well, (laughs) when you attach liar, liar, pants on fire, then that suggests the maesters are right to doubt it. So (laughs) (laughs) generally it seems that mushroom is, is reliable on things that he witnesses, but he'll just make shit up when he, about things he wasn't there for. Uh, But that's, there's exceptions. I'm sure to that. Oh, mushroom. <laughs> so, yeah, and whatever, and I just to respond to JoJo Lady Dane asking about the others being made of purely ice. Uh, yes, they are in the sense that they melt. When you stab them, they entirely melt. Like the bones don't stick around underneath. The bones melt too. Everything melts away. So obviously what goes into creating another is a complex question, uh, but their physical body is made entirely of ice at this point. Yes, because they melt when stabbed. Um, and the dragons, I don't think you'll see a dragon, like, vaporize into, like, mist or something. Like, if you kill <laughs> a dragon, its body is there as a, as a dead corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, there's definitely a difference there, I guess, is, was yeah. my point. But let's do the Alice Rivers one, uh, because that Alice Rivers is awesome. And uh, there was another, uh, there was a lot, of was a few cool uh, witchy women uh, witchy women in this uh, in this book, which I really enjoyed. Uh, we're getting beyond just the simple fact of like so and so was murdered and blamed for everything, and they cut off her nipples and called her a witch, and because she was from the east. Like we're getting we're getting a little bit beyond that. So let's talk about Alice Rivers. Who wants to kick it off? What would one of the ladies like to start? Emma Mel, I would love it. to, but I haven't made it that far. 
I tried really uh, hard, but I didn't. <laughs> I guess that is towards the end. That's true. Um, so, yeah. well, just to give everybody an idea, Alice Rivers, but previously we had seen her show up with Amond One-Eye at the Battle of the God's Eye. When Amond lands at Heron Hall to fight Damon and Caraxes, he's got a woman on the dragon with him named Alice Rivers, who it's vaguely rumored that she's, you know, she's a witch. Um, uh-huh. And... Uh, but she turns up a bunch more in this story. Uh, and so, um, and I'm trying to remember all the different places she turned up, but she also, after that battle over the God's eye, Heron Hall, nobody like paid attention to Heron Hall. She basically took power in Heron Hall and organized all the thieves and cutthroats and random people that were there and was ruling it as her little fiefdom. Um, and she claimed to be pregnant uh, with Amund One-Eye's kid. Um, so that was cool. Aziz, what else, what else did we get about? For, uh, I know you're the, you've got the best memory. Well, we've got this really blatant uh, example of magic where this messenger comes back reporting to the crown saying, I, this is what I learned there. But if and no one, I can't, but if anyone laughs, I'm going to die. And someone laughed and he died. It was like, what on earth? This is, this is like, it's not quite like bridge of dream level, like magic, just blatant with a, no, no other possible explanation. Like you can't look at that and think it's something else besides right, magic, were, unless it's just completely made up, which there's no reason to think that either. Right. There were witnesses. The, the guy definitely dropped dead in the middle of a room. There's no question. Yeah. There was a bunch of sober people around that saw it happen. So that's really powerful magic. Yeah. And we have this parallel to uh, Danelle Lawson with the idea of she bathes in blood to keep her youth, which is a common trope for any woman who looks good after a certain age. They just think, oh, she's, she's a witch. <laughs> she looks good after age 30. What's going on here? This she can't be possible. Blood. It's, yeah. So, but it's also Hall, So it, it kind of like, well, and we, given that she has quite clearly demonstrated real magic, then, well, maybe she is preserving her youth with like <laughs> well here you go here you go maybe she's born with it maybe it's blood magic <laughs> maybe it's a blood magic maybe, maybe blood it's witchy magic. shit <laughs> in any case uh so yeah alice rivers was cool uh another uh sort of potentially witchy woman uh not super witchy but definitely a visionary woman was of course Alyssa farman Oh, so cool. A woman who tried to sail or possibly did sail across the Sunset Sea. So, Melanie, uh, you were you said you were ready to go on this one. So I'll, I'll let you start it. But yeah, tons to talk about here. I am. Oh, my gosh. I love Elissa Farman. First of all, I'm just really happy. I, I'm going to talk about it a little tiny bit. Um, I'm really happy that George had a little bit more representation of... Um, non-straight women in the text. There was a little bit of women-loving women action going on there, which was great. And thank you, George, for listening to all of your female uh, fans who have been asking for more of that. Um, But apart from that, there was one scene, um, the scene where Alyssa Farman is sailing off on Sun Chaser with the Autumn Moon and the Lady Meredith. And there was so much mythical astronomy going on in this scene that my jaw just dropped. And I was like, what's going on here? Um, So the sun chaser sails off ahead and the lady Meredith and the autumn moon are left behind to deal with this horrible storm. And in the midst of this storm, you have these, I'm looking at the autumn moon and the lady Meredith as two moons. And 
one of the moons is struck by lightning because there's this vengeful storm god thing going on. And it's almost like the two moons were getting too close to the sun. I'm sorry. I'm horrible at explaining mythical astronomy. And I feel like you should be doing this. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. No, carry Um, on. (laughs) But so the two moons are chasing the sun. They get too close to the sun. They're struck down by lightning in the midst of this gigantic storm. And from, from beneath, um, all of the sailors on the autumn moon claim to see Kraken arms grabbing the ship, um, Lady Meredith, and dragging her beneath the waves. And to me, I was just like, wow, that's basically everything that we've been talking about as far as mythical astronomy goes. And then um, just to bring up really quickly something that I noticed in relation to the King Under the Mountain myth, I noticed that later the Sun Chaser uh, the next place that the sun chaser shows up or next piece of land that, that they find um, is three islands. Uh, two of them were hills and one was a mountain um, and had birds circling around the top. And I was like, oh, that's definite king under the mountain symbolism because of the circling birds and it being a hill. And it was kind of like this liminal uh, realm, kind of like Avalon, where there was like all this food and a bounty of natural resources and almost uh, like a paradise, sort of like a vase to Laurel, where Daenerys hangs out in this kind of like, you know, limbo area. And it's still land of death because there's like these poisonous lizards and other hazards on this uh, island. Anyway, I yeah. I was catching shades of like Voyage of the Dawn Treader too, like Narnia, I that, yeah. and, which is inspired by certain Greek myths and stuff. And Blue Tiger in the chat points out that Alyssa Farman is probably a reference to Queen Alyssa of Carthage, a Nymeria-like character who fled Tyre because her brother stole her throne and founded Carthage. And I know Blue Tiger is actually working on some of the parallels to um, Aeneas, or Aeneas, who founded um, Rome, right? Am I talking right? Um, I sort think so, of. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. I'm that's sorry. the rest. That's the death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so fortunately, it won't be me writing it, uh, but Blue Tiger, who knows his history a little better uh, in that regard. But there's definitely some really cool. Uh, Rome, Carthage parallels that are happening, uh, and a lot of it ties into the Great Empire of the Dawn and the uh, Lord of the Rings parallels, Numenor, and all that stuff. Because it's all about like sort of leaving one place and founding a new city and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, look for that um, from Blue Tiger, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Tolkienic Song of Ice and Fire, or what is it? What is it? What's the name of it? I'll get the link. Hang on a second. Um, yeah. He also just started his Advent series, I think. I don't know if it's posted yet. Maybe it's but it's coming insider up. Knowledge, but while you're looking that up, I'll say real quick that I'm. I was so excited to see a Kraken scene because right? we're all we've talked about the possibility, <laughs> yeah. not just the possibility, but the the likelihood of Krakens in the Winds of Winter. It's been talked about by so many people so many times. We've got Krakens mentioned by Varys by. Uh, many different sailors by Tumco Lowe of all people, just they come up a lot of places and now we actually see one and we all know that fire and blood is full of foreshadowing for the winds of winter. And it's, it's very tempting to see yep. this as more confirmation that we're going to see Krakens. Thank you, Aziz, um, because I was so stoked about the Krakens and we don't just hear about them once we hear about them like early on, like, and then yeah. we hear about them again through the book. And um, that made me think of Lodos twice drowned. Because we just mentioned Patchface, and he, I thought he was such a funny character in the beginning because he's like, Oh, 
um, well, I'm going to go meet with my dad again and get some information. And then he comes back, maybe. <laughs> People follow him, too. Like, yeah, what the hell? Like, oh, <laughs> guy, he, he might really be a prophet of the drowned god. That would be so cool. But I don't think he is. But I thought I love the cool TV show. Master, Archmaster is making fun of him. Uh, that was a nice little yes. touch. Like, ah, oh, lot yes. us. <laughs> that was good. That was, that nice. was perfect. <laughs> I was a big fan of the Maester scenes uh, on the show. I thought they captured the like quarreling, you know, detached old man vibe uh, very well. So yes. I dug it. Yes. Um, all right. So let's see here. Did you did you have more you wanted to say about? Uh, oh, so Krakens. There's also a sea dragon sighting too, mm-hmm. um, which makes me think that maybe the sea dragon is not just. I mean, obviously it's a lot of symbolism, but I was assuming there wasn't actually a sea dragon. And that, uh, and that it was only symbolism, but it may be that there are, you know, leviathans, sea monsters, sea dragons, sea serpents. Yeah. Uh, well, they specifically cool. say cool. leviathans as something different in these books, unless I had a fire and blood dream and went crazy. Well, okay, no. So, so let me clarify. It's there, so they use the word leviathan to refer to whales most often. Um, leviathan, both in the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire, can be used very casually for any large sea monster. Um, hence the application to whales. Several um, overweight people in the story are called mm-hmm. leviathans or yellow whales. But the, the classic biblical leviathan is a, more like a sea dragon. It's a multi-headed sea serpent type thing. The word leviathan literally means twisted, coiled, or folded in on itself. Um, and that has to do with the coils of a snake. Um, so, And that's based on other sea serpent myths. Um, in the Middle East, uh, and Canaanite myth, uh, Greek myth, Sumerian myth, stuff like that. Every so the word Leviathan is complex. It's People use it on the surface level mostly to talk about whales in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like They don't even say big whales. They usually say Leviathan. Um, but separately, there seems to be sea dragons, which fits the the biblical Leviathan description. Um, and there's Leviathan symbolism stuff. So here's a, a quote, a helpful quote. We have Brandon and the Ironborn or Brandon, the shipwright and the Ironborn who came after him had both sailed the northern seas where monstrous krakens, sea dragons and Leviathans the size of islands swam through cold gray waters. So, yeah, you're right. It's It's used different ways here, both as a generic and as a but it specifically says sea dragons. I mean, that's that's awesome. Blatant, straight some, up. <laughs> some people wonder if maybe Martin is thinking about a plesiosaur um, when he says Leviathan, but I'm pretty sure uh, it's they say even great gray whales, the Leviathans of the sea, or something like. So, yeah. but, like well, I said, Leviathan can be used loosely too for just any large thing that's like a sea monster. So, it's the other reference to Leviathans in Fire and Blood sounds like whales because it says there's a pod of Leviathans. One of them, a huge white bull larger than a ship, had slammed into Lady Meredith of a purpose. Yeah. So, yep. Those sound like whales, right, to me. Yeah. yeah a pod. Yeah. The word pod make, certainly sounds like whales to me. Yeah. But it's cool. It sounds like there's all kinds of crap swimming around in the sea. There's baby beluga and sea dragons and all of it. So yeah. I'm into it. I dig it. Um, so to go back to to go back to Alyssa Farman, uh, this was the most riveting personal story in the book. I have to say, like yeah. the whole idea of sailing west over the sea is just like fantasy crack, you know, catnip for us. And then not only, not only does she find an island, which is really exciting. Um, and then you've got the whole, like, I don't know. I just love stories where it's like only 40 people in a spaceship, like sailing off to some new world. And it's like this little insular community. And they have this, all this little drama set against this backdrop of like, we don't know where we're going. It's the same thing here where it's like, you've got these three ships 
They're sailing off into nowhere. They don't know what's happened. They reach the little island and they're like, well, should we found an island? Should we go back? Uh, and by the way, that's what I would have done is I would have gone back and then come back to that little island with more supplies and built it up as a way station and then explored further from there. That would have been the smart thing to do. But she wanted to, you know, grab it, grab it all and chase the sun. So she kept sailing. The other people, the high towers wanted to go back. Like, you know, I was just really riveted to that story. And then at the very end, you get to the point where we don't know what happened to her. Well, except that Corliss Valerian will swear to his dying day that he saw a boat in a shy that could only be Sun Chaser. Like, whoa, she made it. You know, she made it. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> um, I saw in uh, some context, I don't remember what. Oh. Sam just disappeared into the void. The void has swallowed her. You don't speak of Ashai lightly. <laughs> yeah, this is what happens. <laughs> the shadow swallowed her up. I'm on sure top- oh, sorry. Oh. I was going to say, on top of everything else that Alyssa has done, she's what moves on Danny's eggs. Like, she's the one who steals them and gives them away. So, like, she's the catalyst to get Danny those eggs. And I think that that's really interesting that this, you know, enterprising and um, fire of the gods chasing person is the one who sends Danny the eggs in the end. So, Melanie, is are you the one that thought of the Quave? No, it was Painkiller Jane. Painkiller Jane. Okay, down so so I love this. Jane. Aziz, you tell me what you think. This is Painkiller Jane, one of our mutual patrons, in fact. Yeah. Um, she called after reading this. She's like, dude, Alyssa Farman is Quave. Hmm. And think about how much sense that would make, right? She sails around the world. She's she's already like a visionary person, okay? But she's specifically sailing west to go east, ends <laughs> up in a shy, okay? She's the one who put the dragon's eggs in motion to get to Danny. Then she's giving Danny advice on how to wake those dragon's eggs through dreams, then telling her to embrace those dragons, all while telling her you got to go west to go east, which is exactly what Alyssa Farman did. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't think of any obvious detractions from that. Maybe maybe for, surely further research is needed, but that's a fantastic start. And um, Alyssa Farman was in love basically with a dragon lord princess in the past, right? Yeah. And I'm not really a fan of the other quaves, this person fa- theories. None of the others that have come along do I think have a lot of more than circumstantial evidence here. This one seems a lot stronger just on the surface so far. So that's exciting. Well, I like this Shiera Sea Star theory that's the one that makes the most sense to me because of the heart-shaped face connection to to, uh to uh mel um yeah i think the timeline's really the timeline's really rough on that one that's the problem for that one it's really really narrow fit to make it possible if not if not impossible because of the age of melisandre and everything so well we don't know exactly how old melisandre is in book canon we just know we don't but she would not be very old if if this is if she was a slave uh, in Ashai at the time, it would and still have time to um, go back and you know have been taken by uh, rather sorry the other way around. Shiera's age doesn't allow much room for Melisandre to be her daughter uh, in that sense. Oh, I see. Yeah, there's and we're conflating two different theories. Also, there's yeah. the theory that Melisandre is the daughter of Blood Raven and Shiera Sea Star, which is Yoke Boy's theory. Uh, right. And again, uh, congratulations, Yoke Boy. Ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but that is Yoke Boy's theory. I'm a big fan of that one. 
Uh, it's got great symmetry, uh, creates with um, uh, uh, the idea that the Melisandre's tutoring John and her father, Blood Raven, is tutoring Bran. Uh, but then if Shiera Seastar is Quave, then she's tutoring Danny. And it creates this triumvirate, which I kind of like the, the symmetry of. But it's definitely very sketchy. Uh, and the Alyssa Farman uh, is pretty cool. Like, that that theory makes a lot of sense. I mean, she ended up in a shy. The connection to the dragon's eggs. She used to be in love with the dragon princess. She went west to go east. So <laughs> pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. The west to go east part is that's – I hadn't considered that. That's really huge. Yeah, it definitely makes your brain tingle a little bit. Yep. <laughs> and you're right about that story being super riveting and, and it's like, because none of us saw anything like that coming in this book. Like we thought there'd be stuff on dragons and obviously there'd be more stuff on Targaryens and, and Targaryen magic maybe and all these different cool characters. But this story was just like, what? This is out of nowhere. Really awesome. Okay. And uh, uh, Sandry says they had a power surge. She should be back in a couple minutes. And she was just going to bring up the Quave uh, Alyssa thing. So she should be back in a moment and we're on the same page, which is cool. So yeah, that's really mm-hmm. awesome. I just, I, that's a really tantalizing theory. So nice one, painkiller Jane. Um, it just, yeah, makes a little bit of sense. It really does. And the symbolism of the Farmans is interesting uh, because they have a white tower on their island, uh, which makes you think of the white towers on islands that we've seen at Starfall and at Old Town and all both of those places have like weirwood white tower symbolism. Uh, and then we get Silverwing landing on top of the tower at uh, old, was it old town? Yeah. And breathing, breathing a bunch of flame and like, or no, they the flapped its wings and fanned the flames of the, the watchtower on top of the high tower. That's uh, so cool. that, that was pretty cool too. So the whole idea of a dragon living in a white tower is essentially part of the dragon going into the weird one that symbolism and similarly um we see a bunch of silver dragons do this too so silver wing lives on an island in the middle of red lake and red lake is tied to rows of red lake and skin changing in the children of the forest where brandon of the bloody blade slew children or maybe impregnated them too and then we have adam valerion with sea smoke another pale gray dragon supposedly stopping by the isle of faces to take counsel with the green men. So we keep having this idea of a white or silver dragon character going to a weirwood place, whether it's an island with weirwoods or a white tower that symbolizes a weirwood. Um, and so that's that's really exciting, like symbolically that all lines up pretty well. Um, so anyways, um, uh, you know, uh, so before we do our Septon Moon orgy, um, <laughs> orgy of symbolism and body behavior, would anyone else like to bring up anything else? Because the Septon Moon thing is going to take a good 15 minutes, I would say. Um, let's see. I had looked up uh, a couple of things that probably weren't that relevant. I'd looked up more references to Leviathans, but I didn't got anything new out of it. And I had looked up uh, something else, but I forget. Yeah, no, so, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, move on. Hello. Hey, we get to see a Photoshop save my painting or not. Oh, yes, that precious moment. It's auto saving usually, right? Okay. Yes. After a certain point, um, uh, Photoshop, I think it's like after CS4. You guys don't need my nerd knowledge. Yay. There it is. I pulled it it up on my phone and I caught the rest. And it sounds like you got my back door, Lucy. 
or at least uh, I you did. picked yeah, up. I, yeah, I got your text. Yeah. Perfect. I don't know what you mean about back doors, but uh, I did get your text. What, what back doors? I wasn't. Okay. <laughs> don't get the cesspool started. Oh my! I I would never imply that. Of course not. I am pure. Uh, so um, yeah, so Emma, um, Emma or uh, Melanie, I, I keep deferring to you because, of course, me and Aziz are known for uh, extended monologues and stuff. So would either either one of you two like to bring up a topic before we get to the cock of the moon? Yes, I think you're doing very well. You you are letting us interrupt you when necessary. Um, no, I'm ready to discuss Septon Moon. Yeah, cock of the moon talk. Woo! <laughs> my dragon, my Chinese water dragon, is male. We found out officially, and his name is Moon. And this yeah. happened like a week before. He was originally named Moon Dancer because we we thought he was a girl, but now he is well Moon. So please speak of my dragon's honor. He is so yeah. handsome. I've got one of the princesses of the cesspool, Painkiller Jane, speaking <laughs> up to say that. Aegon sitting on the purple and gold dragon uh, was compared to him sitting on a turd, uh, which is pure cesspool talk. And the moment I read that, I thought of you and Ravenous Reader, of course. Of course. Uh, oh, I do have one super quick anecdote that I thought was hilarious along the lines of the dragon. Well, the dragon biting the baby and being hacked a bits wasn't hilarious. It was just weird. But Aegon, the unworthy, beating Aemon the Dragon Knight in the crib with his dragon egg was just too funny. That's like one of the last things in the whole book. It's like you're not it's you're not told it's Aegon the unworthy name in the Dragon Knight, but that's it's just Aegon and Aemon. That's who it is, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> Someone, he's one and a half years old and he's beating his infant brother with this dragon egg. He's just like what, like, what the hell? <laughs> this, this guy. <laughs> which which by the way is is of course mythical astronomy symbolism. So Aemon the Dragon Knight is has the icy white sword symbolism of the King's Guard. Uh, obviously, uh, Aegon the Unworthy is a perfect evil Azor High bad king, you know, kind of dude. He's also like a bad Garth figure because he has tons of children, uh, but he's basically like one of those disgusting type of uh, Garth figures. Who Garth is pretty rapey, to be honest. So there is that. Uh, but in any case, Aegon the Unworthy would be like a Knight's King figure, and what he's doing is he's place he's putting the dragon into the ice when he's taking a dragon egg and hitting aim and the dragon knight over the head with it. That's essentially like the fire moon meteor getting planted into the ice moon. So it's literally a dragon egg meteor seed planted in the ice of aim the aim the dragon knight. So that's pretty cool. And yeah. So Septon moon, Septon moon, zoom, zoom sent in a super chat, by the way. Thank you. Zoom, zoom just says happy Sunday with the little flower. Thank you. looks like a tulip. All right. Uh, I I pulled the quotes of Septon Moon to so I'd have them aside. So Septon Moon, speaking of Garth figures, Septon Moon is a gross Garth figure. He matches Garth perfectly. Check out this description. Uh, barefoot, bearded, and possessed of immense fervor, the poorest fellow could speak for hours and often did. And what he spoke about was sin. I am a sinner, were the words with with which Septon Moon began every sermon, and so he was. A creature of immense appetites, a glutton and a drunkard renowned for his lechery, Moon lay each night with a different woman, impregnating so many of them that his acolytes began to say that his seed could make a barren woman fertile, which is one of the things they say about Garth the Green. 
Such was the ignorance and folly of his followers that this tale became widely believed. Husbands began to offer him their wives and mothers their daughters, which is, of course, standard cult leader behavior. But it's, again, something that they say about Garth. Uh, Septon Moon, by the way, Garth was a cult leader. So uh, Septon Moon never refused such offers. And after a time, some of the hedge knights and men-at-arms amongst his rabble began to paint images of the cock of the moon on their shields. And a brisk trade grew up in clubs, pendants, and staffs carved to resemble Moon's member. A touch with the head of these talismans was believed to bestow prosperity and good fortune. So you can't talk about Septon Moon without Moon Meteor symbolism cropping up. But first, let's just talk about the Garthness. He's obviously a Garth character, right? I mean, this is the most Garth, most Garth-like of anyone we've seen that isn't named Garth. Uh, so, oh God, <laughs> Sammy, what did you do? No, zoom back in. Zoom back in. What's the, the cock what of the, the moon? Going on? Oh, <laughs> that's the cock of the moon. <laughs> All right, now that now the super chats are rolling in. Yes, feed, feed us the super chats as we talk about the moon cock. So the first the first time I read that sentence, I was like, "It's Elmo's spirit animal." Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, although I'm a monogamous uh, horned lord, but that being said, yeah. So, all right. So let's go back. So, who is Septon Moon? He's basically um, a rebel Septon. He's the alt High Septon, if you will. He's during the time of Magor the Cruel. He comes. He's basically a leader of the Poor Fellows, who of course are known as the Stars. So he's Septon Moon leading around the stars, and he he issues forth the stars. He commands the stars like a moon sending out moon meteors. Uh, but essentially, he, uh, we get this high septon that appeases the Targaryens. And, and Septon Moon calls this guy the High Lickspittle. And Septon Moon leads his followers to Old Town, basically sets up camp outside Old Town, and preaches against the High Lickspittle, and he preaches against the dragons. Um, even when Jaehaerys and Alysanne get married and want to come to Old Town to get blessed, and everyone basically is moving on past Magor and all those wars, Still, Septon Moon is out there preaching against the dragons, uh, like some of the other mad prophets that we've seen, like the guy who, um, the shepherd who led the attack on the dragon pit. He sounds very similar. You know, we got to cleanse the seven kingdoms of dragons, yada, yada, yada. So that's who Septon Moon is. Um, and here's a quote about that. Hundreds of poor fellows had been hunted down and slain, and their scalps delivered to the king's men for the, for the bounty. But thousands more still roamed the woods and hedges, and the wild places of the Seven Kingdoms, cursing the Targaryens with their every breath. One band even crowned their own High Septon in the person of a bearded brute named Septon Moon. Septon Moon, the, quote, High Septon, raised up by the poor fellows against the man in Old Town they called the High Lickspittle, roamed the riverlands in the Reach at Will, drawing huge crowds whenever he emerged from the woods to preach against the king. And I keep slowing down and emphasizing the woods thing because, of course, you guys know there's a big symbolic correlation between Weirwoods and the moon and Nissa Nissa. They all three sort of represent each other in various ways. And so we've got Septon Moon's stars coming out of the woods constantly. They hide in the woods. They come out of the woods. So you guys know what that's about. In any case, the quote goes on. Word reached King's Landing that Sir Joffrey Doggett had been seen entering Riverrun, not as a captive, but as a guest of Lord Tully. Septon Moon appeared once more, leading thousands of... Uh, the faithful on a march across the reach to Old Town. So I just love that line. Septon Moon appeared once more. It sounds like a moon coming out 
after like a, a foggy long night or something. And then it says, when Lord Oakhart and Lord Rowan appeared before him with their levies, they came not to attack Moon, but to join him. It's like, no, don't attack the moon. <laughs> oh, Sanry, you're making me happy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. No, you keep I doing, doing the Lord's work. When Aziz is here, you're doing the Lord's work. Mm-hmm. This is great. Um, so let's see here, uh, and it's re- reemphasized later that Lords Oakhart and Rowan granted Moon their protection. So think about it: Lord Oakhart and Lord Rowan are both named after trees. Okay, and oak heart in particular gives you the idea of a heart tree because it's an oak heart. Um, and that symbolism is developed with Ari's oak heart as well, as we've discussed. And then Rowan is Rowan Gold Tree. That's who they descend from, a, a child of Garth. So these are both descendants of Garth the Green, named after trees, and they're protecting the moon. And the moon comes out of the woods and sends their stars out of the woods. So it's a pretty constant theme that's running. Um, then it says a massive hulk of a man. Moon had been blessed with a thunderous voice and an imposing physical presence, like the moon. <laughs> Though his poor fellows had proclaimed him the true high septon, this septon, if indeed he was such, was no picture of piety. And then it goes on. So that's pretty cool. It's got the thunderous voice. So you think of the moon cracking, Nissa Nissa's cry, the thunderbolt meteor of the storm god. It's all sort of wrapped up there. Um, and then, so let me pause here. Let, let me let you guys get in before we go to the death scene. Comments on Septon Moon so far? It's kind of random, but the um, that the line about the thunderous voice definitely caught my eye. And what also caught my eye was when the fireworms were expunged from Arya's body. They made apparently a, a really nasty sound and just. I'm curious to know what's going on with all of these sounds, but yeah, it's kind of not really like on topic. Well, no, it is on topic. It that's basically um, <laughs> the Nissanissa's. I've I've figured out that Nissanissa's cry. Well, me and a few people have figured out that Nissanissa's cry and all the horn blowing is essentially the same symbol. There's this very loud sound that fills the world at the time when the moon cracks. And Dragonbinder is the big clue about this because Dragonbinder is a shivering hot scream. It splits the air like a sword thrust. It's like an anguished cry and a keening. And a, and a, so it's like, it's got all of the symbolism. It's both a sword and a scream and a horn at the same time. And then we got Widow's Whale, which is a sword that symbolizes the comet that's named after a woman's cry. And it, what was it that cracked the moon? Was it the comet sword or was it Nissa Nissa's cry? Well, the, the cry symbolizes the sword in a way. So... It's really all the same thing. So that sound is a moon-breaking sound, and, and that you, has. Go ahead. You, I was going to say, if you look at Arya's body as a moon being submerged in the ice, just like we were saying, she's a dragon locked in ice. The fireworms coming out and emitting that sound are really indicative of the comets coming out of the moon. Right. The screaming sound can be located, like sort of in the the cracking moon or the things that come out of the moon, because the actual sound that we're talking about is literally the sound of things screaming into the atmosphere, which is very loud. You, you can read about descriptions of meteors um, from like the Tunguska event or other things like that. And it's, they're really loud, as you might expect. Um, so that's, that's part of where all that comes from. And then, of course, magical horns might have been part of, you know, summoning the comet or committing the blood magic sin that threw everything off kilter in the beginning or whatever, whatever. So 
Uh, Emma, I have did... some thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Scepter Moon at this time is constantly paired as going round with Joffrey Doggett. And if you have a look at the House Doggett sigil, it's um, a um, black raven on white and um, sort of the sort of diagonal or the diagonal half mm. is a white unicorn in green. So you've got the unicorn in the green sea oh. style symbolism going on. So oh. they're paired together. So it's the sword, the unicorn leading the swords and the moon leading the stars, which is a really phenomenal pairing that I just got really, really excited about. I and love the, it so much. The cock of the moon <laughs> is is a unicorn symbol. It's like exactly. the, the moon is usually female, um, but now the moon has a cock. And that's basically the idea of the moon meteors. Like the moon is a goddess before anything strikes it. But once there's an impregnation, the goddess explodes into swords and dragons. And so now those are the mooncocks. Those moon meteors are like seeds, like impregnating implements that land other places and, and grow, you know, burning trees or, or mushroom clouds, if you will, when they land. So, yes, it's all lots of unicorn stuff going on. And, of course, when we say unicorn disease, there's... um. I so we're literally we're making a, a joke here. Um, so Varys gets he's a eunuch, right? And he gets his member chopped off, and it gets tossed into the flame, and we get a blue flame that comes out. Well, blue flame. Um, when Danny sees um, unicorns <laughs> in the pyre, they're made of blue flame, um, and so we've connected this idea that the eunuch's horn is essentially the non-existent member of a eunuch and it ties into like Osiris remember Osiris was dismembered and they couldn't find his penis. And so they put, they put something else instead of his penis um, Isis when she reassembled him. So there's this whole idea of like um, castration you notice there's an awful lot of castration in the story and it's all sort of building on this symbolism, um, which so it's like a unicorn unicorn. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. 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 You get it. My contribution, of course, is a pun. <laughs> well, no, that is that's that's, that's the point. The you're you're, you're cool. getting the joke now. That's the that's nice. the and George is right. making this right joke. On. It's not awesome. our thing. George is making this joke for sure. Well done, I, George. I fought it at first. Believe me, um, I always fight the cesspool stuff at first, and then I had to bow to the unicorn and give. George way. likes the cesspool stuff. He, so yeah. I have a more I have maybe a more mundane comparison here for Septon Moon, which is that he just has a huge Robert Baratheon vibe. Uh, not only the obvious stuff being a huge man that's very charismatic, who drinks a lot, and who sleeps with tons of women, but his whole thing is we have to get rid of all the Targaryens. Yep. <laughs> like he's, he's obsessed with getting rid of all the Targaryens, just like Robert. So that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and he's undone by drink, over, drinking too much and being killed, you know, uh, which is vaguely similar to Robert's end. Yeah, totally. And of course, Robert is a Garth character. Uh, so that all fits. Word. Yeah, um, good point. Very well. So now Septon Moon's death is just ridiculous. I couldn't even keep a straight face. Um, <laughs> so check this out. Uh, across the realm in King's Landing. Um, okay, yeah. So across the realm in King's Landing, Jaharis and his counselors considered how to rid the realm of this scourge, Septon Moon. The boy king and his sisters, Reyna and Alisan, all had dragons. And some felt the best way to deal with Septon Moon was the way that Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters had dealt with the two kings on the Field of Fire. So like, well, we should attack the moon with dragons. <laughs> <laughs> so then 
Then it says, Jaehaerys had no taste for such slaughter, however, and his mother, Queen Alyssa, flatly forbade it, being a moon maiden herself, uh, reminding them of the fate of Rhaenys Targaryen and her dragon in Dorne. So Rhaenys Targaryen and her death is a picture of the whole God's eye thing. The dragon gets shot through the eye and then falls down into hell. Um, that is the whole point of the God's eye. It's the eclipse wandering too close. The moon wanders too close to the sun. It makes an eclipse. The eclipse looks like an eye. And then that eye gets put out by the comet when it hits the moon. And so you've got this eye stabbing thing. And thus the Odin eye stabbing is united with this sun, moon, Azor, Ahai becoming a God event. Okay. So what's happening here is that he's saying, well, if you attack the moon with dragons, it might turn out like Rainey's when her dragon got shot through the eye, which is just a big symbol of the entire moon exploding event. So that's, that is really tremendous. Then it says, Lord Rogar, the king's hand, said with some reluctance that he would lead his own host across the reach and disperse moon's men by force of arms, though it would mean pitting his stormlanders and whatever other forces he might gather against Lord Rowan and Oakhart and their knights and men-at-arms. So Oakhart and Rowan are both trees. Here we have the Stormlord and Stormlanders threatening to hit, strike the tree and disperse Moon's men. So this is a Storm God's Thunderbolt setting the tree on fire symbol attached to the idea of breaking apart the stars from the moon. So that's really nice because it's tying that Storm God Thunderbolt myth into the moon stuff, which I always say is connected. And then he says, like as not, we will win, but not without cost. Like, yeah, that's an understatement. So then it says, mayhaps the gods were listening, for even as the king and council argued in King's Landing, the problem was resolved in a most unexpected way. Dusk was falling outside of Old Town when Septon Moon retired to his tent for his evening meal, exhausted by a day of preaching. As always, he was guarded by his poor fellows, by stars, Huge strapping axemen with unshorn beards. But when a comely young woman presented herself at the Septon's tent with a flagon of wine uh, that she wished to give to his holiness in return for his help, they admitted her at once, for they knew that what sort of help the woman required, the sort that would put a babe in her belly. A short time passed, during which the men outside the tent heard only occasional grunts and gusts of laughter from, uh, from Septon Moon inside. But then suddenly there was a groan and a woman's shriek. There's the cry of agony and ecstasy, followed by a bellow of rage. The tent flap was thrown open and the woman burst out half naked and barefoot and dashed away wide-eyed and terrified before any of the poor fellows could think to stop her. Septon Moon himself followed a moment later, naked, roaring, and drenched in blood. He was holding his neck and blood was leaking between his fingers and dripping down into his beard where his throat had been slit open. So this is like huge... Weirwood stigmata symbolism. Uh, he's got bloody hands, the red smile. He's got a red beard. And it's all happening as, since he's a moon character, this is moon blood that's pouring out of him. And we've got the crescent cut across the neck that ties in the whole beheading and the sickles and the crescent moons and stuff. So that's just an orgy of moon symbolism. And then it's, and I keep using the word orgy intentionally, obviously. So then it says, it is said that moon staggered because he's a stag man through half the camp lurching from campfire to campfire in pursuit of the doxy who had cut him 
Finally, even his great strength failed him. He collapsed and died as his acolytes pressed around him, wailing their grief. So again, we've got wailing stars. Of his slayer, there was no sign. She had vanished into the night, never to be seen again, which kind of makes her sound like the comet, to be, to be honest, striking him and then disappearing into the night, never to be seen again. Um, because that's exactly what Master Crescent says about the comet. It's a star with a long tail. It'll be here and it will disappear into the heavens, never to be seen again in our lifetime. So then it says, so well, okay, let me pause there. So we've got the moon blood pouring out of Septon Moon. It's, he's going from campfire to campfire, bleeding into the campfires, which gives you the whole bleeding stars symbolism. And it creates the idea of like these fiery smoke, you know, mushroom cloud things happening from wherever the fiery moon blood lands on the earth. It, throw, it makes these fires. So we know what that's about. Um, and then here's the best part, perhaps. It says, in the aftermath of Moon's death, the ragged host that he had led to Old Town began to disintegrate. Some of his followers, so that's the moon disintegrating, obviously. Um, some of his followers were already had already slipped away when word of King Megor's death and Prince Jaehaerys' ascension reached them. Now that trickle became a flood. So now we've got moon blood floods and a flood of stars. So bleeding stars, that's the whole flood symbolism. Waves of night and moon blood. Then it says, before the Septon's corpse had even begun to stink, a dozen rivals had come forward to claim his mantle, and fights began to break out amongst their respective followers. Because the possession of Moon's mortal remains became itself a bone of contention between two of his would-be successors. And we don't need to go into the rest of that, but they fight over his corpse. They use it as a talisman. They try to attack Old Town with it. So if that's not people fighting over Moon meteors and treating them as a sacred relic, then I don't know what is. So, uh, Melanie, I see you most excited about this. So I'll, I'll turn this over to you, but I want everybody to comment all this crap. The puns are just so good and they make me so happy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I don't think I want to discount the idea of Septon Moon's mortal remains being used basically as a giant ram to open up Old Town. Um, it's kind of like using a giant cock to get into old town um but no i i'm just excited about the whole passage because the mythical astronomy was just fantastic and i think that septon moon dashing around from fire to fire was to me the most comedic and just hilarious part of the whole thing and that's what i was excited about it just made my day oh uh, it's just hysterically funny emma what do you think uh, what Melanie was just saying there about um, using sort of an undead cock to open uh, the um, gates of Old Town is very reminiscent of um, Danny using sort of the ship's mast, also known as Joso's cock, to get into Meereen. And um, so that, again, just strengthens some of the sort of uh, wooden tree sea ship parallels with the moon um etc and just the entirety of septum moon is just so so overwhelmingly just <laughs> ridiculously <laughs> over the top it's just absolutely like just oh, it gives yeah, come into like, my castle a whole new meaning doesn't it <laughs> oh, oh yeah God. and he was di he was castrated too um as somebody pointed out in the chat it was julie beth styles uh so it says um when all of his men were dead or dying, a dozen of Lord Hightower's boldest knights, and there's a dozen knights again, 
um, rode forth from a sally port, seized Septon Moon's body, removed his head, tanned and stuffed it, would later be presented to the High Septon and Starry Sept as a gift. So I don't think he was um, not castrated, but he was beheaded. Uh, but yeah, that's, you know, more good. There's a lot of castration in this whole Fire and Blood thing, so easy to mix there it is. up. Uh, yeah, and then it says Moon's murder removed the last major obstacle to the ascension of Jaehaerys Targaryen to the Iron Throne. But from that day to this, debate has raged as to who was responsible for the for his death. So it's like once the Moon was knocked out, a Dragon King could take the throne. So that's like the Bloodstone Emperor coming to power after he's broken the Moon, which fits the theory pretty well of the timeline. The Moon breaking happening at the beginning of the Long Night. Uh, and then it says debate is raged as to who was responsible. So that's pretty cool. Now George is making meta commentary about all of us talking about what broke the moon. So that's uh, that's pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a passage. Um, I think it's right before. I can't find it, but I looked for it earlier where it says um, there may be other moons, dot, dot, dot. And literally in my head, I stopped and I was like, Lucy. There may be other moons. George is giving you a hint there, buddy. Yeah, this is great because I, I still sometimes wonder if all this two moon symbolism is really like one moon that's split in half into ice and fire. And it looks like two moons, but it's really just ever one moon. But then we have this quote. Uh, if it should fall to me to don his mantle, his grace, of course, would have my support in any choice he might make. Septon Mateus uh, assured Queen Regent, the Queen Regent and her advisors, but not all of my brethren are so inclined. And dare I say, there are other moons out there. Thank you. So, I knew you'd have it. It's pretty cool because the myth actually says, you know, there's a second moon in the sky. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too. So George consistently um, refers to the remaining moon as the other moon. And, you know, my whole theory is that the one that died in the past was a fiery moon. So the one that's left is tied to the others. So there's other moons out there still. Yeah, that's that's the icy one. Yep. Pretty fun. What do you think of all that, Aziz? Pretty, uh, pretty that's, fucking uh, fun. Huh? That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a lot of it. Obviously, uh, I don't have the same sense of picking up on these things. Once I'm, once I'm pointed to them, they make sense to me. And yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> the 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 different running to the different fires. And you're right. It's really rich. You, you guys really painted a really. Th- thickened that picture a whole lot <laughs> there's so much going on between the lines there that's really neat why are we so happy right now <laughs> he is extremely happy <laughs> I, I switched the camera to look at aziz's happy kitty i'd had it on sanry for a minute but <laughs> yeah more you, important so so george um and Grohl, george's editor has said before that george does this threefold giving of clues and foreshadowing before something happens where the first clues that he drops are very hard to pick up on. And then the clues get more and more obvious leading up to the event. And the red wedding is the best example. The first foreshadowings we get are so, you know, in the house of the undying in book two, it's hard to know what to make of that. But by the time it's like raining and the wolf is mad and biting the phrase and like Catelyn's misgivings, like the death foreshadowing is uber heavy right before it happens. And so I I do wonder, like, think about A Dance with Dragons, okay? That was the one where Bonero pointed to the moon, made a fist, opened his fist in flames, and then painted Valerian glyphs, doom and darkness. 
while pre while preaching about like dragons in the dark eye of the evil one and stuff. So that to me was like a more obvious George going, yeah, think about the moon exploding in fire and creating doom and darkness when there's dragons involved, you know, it's like, he's trying to spell it out because if my theory is, is right, what we're going to get at the end of the winds of winter is another moon meteor event. And in order for that to not come out of nowhere, he wants to lead us up to be thinking about cataclysmic meteors and moons exploding and comets and celestial cataclysms and all that shit. So this is what I think is, is he's amping it up in fire and blood. He gave us a lot of it in, in the world, a world of ice and fire. Uh, and then I think we're going to get even more of it in the winds of winter leading up to the actual event, which should be basically the thing that triggers the new long night, which is something we probably expect to fall by the ends of winter winter, right? Yeah. I had another thought. I'm sorry, I'm going to double back for a second. Um, oh, feel about free, feel free. The castration of Septim Moon and how he isn't actually castrated, but if we think of... Uh, Joffrey Doggett as his unicorn, then his unicorn does get taken into the possession of Jaehaerys because he gets accepted onto the Kingsguard. So in that sense... Ah, and becomes a white sword, which is... Exactly. Ah, yes. So Yaziz, the the unicorn is tied to blue flame, but also like white worms, white dragons, um, and things like that. Um, like for okay, example, cool. in, in on Drogo's pyre, Danny puts the white dragon's egg in his crotch. For example, oh yeah, true that. Um, and there's a lot of like worm penis, like sort of condescending language that <laughs> builds on that too. So cool, Emma. Did you have more on that? Uh, no, that was sort of um, the only thought that I sort of had. It was just one that that popped. Emma, into my do you mind. have any other thoughts on peony chopping <laughs> to uh, share with the group? Uh, penis chopping quite a lot, but uh, not for right now. I need to go through fire and blood again to find them all. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, Sept and Moon. Um, what can you say? That was obviously kind of a treat for me, uh, for that sure. Was, I was that was just, for you. I was, <laughs> for, for you. I was, I was giggling, <laughs> giggling pretty hard, especially when we got to the other moons out there. Uh, Emmett even tweeted at me. He was like, oh, look at this, you know. <laughs> See, I've been off Twitter. I didn't know other people caught it. Dang it. <laughs> yep yep uh you know, the not a cast boys are two of my most promising symbolism pupils they're uh they uh they're getting it <laughs> so let's see here um i shared this with ideas of ice and fire yesterday but aziz since you're a big lovecraft guy um there's a particular quote about Alyssa farman before she made her voyage where she sort of it talks about how she dreams of sailing west and it, it's very evocative of randolph carter and his dreams of finding this lost city in Dream Quest mm. for Kadath. So check this out. Her dreams were full of sundering rivers and windswept plains and towering mountains with their shoulders in the clouds, of green islands verdant in the sun, of strange beasts no man had tamed and queer fruits no man had tasted, of golden cities shining underneath strange stars. She was not the first to dream this dream. Um, so un- to me, that's like unquestionably Martin evoking that sort of feel of, of randall carter's dreams what i haven't you think? i'd have to reread some of the language in randolph carter but it absolutely felt lovecrafty uh the way he describes these dreamscapes and the golden cities that's very much how he writes so i totally agree yeah the style is there um maybe briefly th- a little bit think of robert e howard as well the, the the landscapes but the dream stuff is it's more lovecrafty than than uh 
than Howard and Howardian for sure. <laughs> but there's a little of both probably. Yeah, it's specifically this shining city that he's trying to find his way back to. Um, so the yeah. whole passage feels like it, but that, that, that bit at the very end was like, Oh, a golden shining city. And she's not the first to dream this dream. So yeah. it's like Martin pounding it in be like, this is a dream. It's a dream world city. And other people have this dream. People like Randolph Carter. So. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. I just want to say really quick, the, the spires of the towers going up in the tops of the clouds and just like the scope of these towers is definitely mm-hmm. like, that's something that keyed me into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the word choice is very specific, like sundering rivers. I was like, that made me kind of like raise an eyebrow sundering. Eh? Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so Melanie, you were pointing out um, when you were saying, Oh, I'm trying to do mythical astronomy. You were, you were comparing the ships to moons. Cause one of them's named autumn moon. Well, what's interesting is that the autumn moon is the ship of the high towers. That's Norman high tower ship. And there's this line from a feast for crows when Sam sees the high tower and it says, he drained the dregs of his tankard, the torchlit terrace of the quill and tankard. Oh, I'm sorry. This isn't Sam. This is um, uh, the uh, Pate, uh, the kid who dies in the prologue. He drained the dregs of his tankard. The torchlit terrace of the quill and tankard was an island of light in a sea of mist this morning. This morning mist. Downriver, the distant beacon of the high tower floated in the damp of the night like a hazy orange moon, but the light did little to lift his spirits. So an orange moon and an autumn moon sound very similar to me. Um, and yeah, it's a harvest moon. Exactly, a harvest moon, and that's the symbolism attached to the high towers here. So it's kind of consistent. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly what all of that gets into without diving into 10 minutes of symbolism mumbo jumbo but i just thought it was kind of consistent and interesting yeah i'll think about that mm-hmm. yeah that's cool Mm-mm-mm. um melanie uh, why don't you uh put forward a discussion topic do you have one that we haven't gotten to that you'd like to put forward sorry had to unmute myself i did hang on just one second and i will find it Valyrian hellhorns bringing mm. death and destruction down on all those who heard their sound. Uh, do you think that Euron and Victarion are going to get like a little extra surprise when they blow this? I thought that was just a figurative way of saying it. They call dragons and the dragons bring down death and destruction. Um, but I've also got the theory that the horn is part of calling the comets or the meteors, which could kind of work for that too are you applying that the hellhorn can do other things than call dragons melanie well I, yeah i mean i think you could look at it both ways absolutely like on a figurative level like you're saying but what if it does have like unintended consequences for victarion and Euron, um where it calls down more death and destruction than they are really like anticipating hmm. i don't know <laughs> It just stuck out at me, and I was like, oh, wow, Valyrian Hellhorns, that's interesting. Hmm." Yeah, there's there's a few references to them. I feel like they're being retconned a little bit. Like, you know, um, there's a one of the Targaryens mentions, like, legends of Hellhorns. So you really get this idea that the Targaryens didn't manage to bring any Hellhorns from Valyria, and that there's something that the Valyrians had, but the Targaryens did not have. So uh, Bridget Walsh with a super chat, everyone on the panel, and in the chat is 100%. Thank you to everyone for bringing their A-game. Oh, you're quite welcome, Bridget. Thank you. And thank you to all the 200-plus people that have been watching here. Pretty steady. So, Ooh, I thought of one more thing. Mm-hmm. 
I had this idea. I was reading about um, Alisane and Jaharis's child, Alyssa. And I remember a while ago we were talking, when we were doing the Good Queen Alisane live stream, we were talking about Gail Targaryen possibly mm-hmm. be Good morning. Gail Targaryen possibly being uh, Alaric's child and being uh, secretly a bastard. And I looked at the time frame and Gail doesn't work out because Gail was born in 80 AC and Alaric died in 72 AC. So that's impossible. But I was looking at Alyssa because Alyssa is wild. It's almost like she has a measure of the wolf's blood in her. And she also has mis- <clears throat> excuse me, mismatched eyes. She's got a green eye and a purple eye. And that made me think of Tyrion. And I know like some people like it and some people don't, but there's the Tyrion Targaryen theory. And Tyrion's mismatched eyes are also green and black. But George kind of has a way of combining black and purple and dark blue symbolism. Um, so I was wondering if Alyssa Targaryen, daughter of Alysan and Jaehaerys, could possibly be an Alaric Stark. I uh, noticed that her hair was described as black. And I may be misremembering it, but it may be a misprint even. And But I might be confusing her with Jocelyn, but um, it was at some point during her wedding were around the chapters of her wedding to uh Balon where she's mm. like um talking about like all of the naughty things you shouldn't talk about as a lady and I think her hair was described as black but I could be wrong but I I would love that to work I don't remember her hair being black but I would have to go back I yeah I'd have to go her. I'd have to look back to make sure I'm not crazy too also yeah anybody way, that has Baratheon genes ends up with black hair pretty much mm. Because it always is dominant. Yeah, I might be. Um, but I did, I did like the mismatch eyes, particularly because one of them was green and one of Tyrion's eyes is green. Um, so I was a big fan of that. And there was also another person um, who had eyes that were. Oh, okay. So this is this is the topic. Aziz, we can uh, we can we can bring you back in here since we've exiled you with our very nerdy. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so Aegon the Third, Dragon's Bane. Um, seems to have parallels to Jon Snow. You were saying that there are plot-based parallels, and I noticed symbolic parallels. Um, So I'm going to, real quickly, the symbolic parallels, I'm going to list them off, and then I want you to tell us about how how that works, So, or at least how the plot parallels go. So Aegon Dragonsbane, he's described as a pale shadow, uh, and it's very conspicuous. It's like the end of a paragraph, like Rhaenyra's pale shadow, period. So that's, of course, other language. Others are pale shadows all the time. Um, maybe um, one of the thoughts of what we should do with Aegon Dragonsbane after the war, well, maybe he should be sent to the wall. So that was interesting. Uh, he always dresses in black. Uh, yeah. He likes to look at the stars during the hour of the wolf. Um, uh, one of the ideas was maybe we should make him a eunuch. Um, and of course there's lots of, uh, loss of fertility symbolism when you go to the wall or when you get resurrected. Um, he says that he's dead inside and walks the red keep like a ghost. Um, and John, of course, covered himself in flour, dressed up like a ghost in the crypts and he's half dead inside. Um, so the symbolism abounds, 
but tell me about the plot parallels. Okay, yeah, there's some really good plot parallels as well. Um, probably uh, there's a few smaller ones that I'm probably going to forget off the top of my head, but two really major ones. One is going to happen and one is probably going to happen or could happen anyway. And then there's some more beyond that. But these two main ones, I think of the one of the most uh, like emotional, tearful scenes in Fire and Blood is the reunion of Aegon with his brother who he thought was dead, Viserys, right? Um, it, it sort of helps pull him out of his, well, he's clearly a traumatized, depressed person for good reason. He saw his mother eaten in front of him. His whole family was slaughtered. You know, he came of age during a terrible civil war during winter. Um, so if you consider that he's kind of the product of two warring families, you've got that going. He's got that going for him. Um, you already mentioned that he dresses in all black. Then we have, okay, so the reuniting of him with his brother is basically a parallel to John finding out that Bran and Rickon are alive because John also thinks one, well, in this case, two of his brothers are dead. And so this is a very similar thing to Aegon III being, you know, thinking his whole family is dead and then finding out that one of his brothers is alive. In this case, it'll be two brothers, but that's really strong, right? That's um, cool, yeah. Then you have, but the really thing, the thing that I think is potentially a huge foreshadowing is the fact that Aegon III's dragon is killed under him. And that could be what happens with Jon's dragon if he gets to ride a dragon, which I think is pretty likely. I think most of us would agree that Jon riding a dragon is pretty likely. So that could predict what happens with him. It also could predict that he lives uh, through the series as a traumatized kind of like a maybe a rough parallel to Frodo who is just deeply in, in John's case he's literally dead and came back to life in Aegon the third's case he had a near-death experience that was traumatizing and then in addition to all the trauma from watching his family his mother die in front of him and his family and all that so let me let me hop in there real quick one of the sure. things that I've long predicted is as a possible ending for John is that he becomes the new cold hands mm. um, and that kind of fits that idea like dead inside just sort of doing his duty, but not really enjoying it. I mean, that's cold hands. Uh, so yeah, that could fit. And, and consistently the guy dresses in black Aegon yeah. uh, dragon Spain. Oh, so check this out. Aegon is terrified of dragons because he saw a dragon eat his mother when he was six <laughs> messed up. Um, mm. So he's terrified. The dragon that's like, he's around most often is a pink dragon called Morning, who belongs to uh, Reyna Targaryen. And so a dragon called Morning is kind of crazy for symbolism, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> you, call, you might as well call it Dawn. So you've got this John analog, and he's scared of the Dawn dragon, uh, the dragon of Morning, which is interesting. <laughs> so so uh, what we get also, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Aegon Third also marries... Uh, Jahera at first, but she dies. But then he marries Daenera. <laughs> so Daenera, Daenerys, obviously, that's hard to miss. Um, oh, and that's a unification of uh, Targ lines when he does that, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the Valerian side, yeah. Which is what John and Danny would be, in, in a way. Yeah, so that's pretty, that's pretty strong as well. Um, there's, unfortunately, because Fire and Blood ends where it does, there's no there there's probably future opportunities for Jon Snow parallels that we just don't won't wouldn't get till Fire and Blood 2 
by which point those parallels may have already come to pass in the story. So they wouldn't necessarily be foreshadowing at this point. They would still be fun parallels. But Fire and Blood, if Fire and Blood Part 2 comes out after the series is complete, then it, we obviously we can't use that to to as predictive. But I, I imagine we'll see more parallels uh, to John and um, Aegon Third as we learn more about him. But this stops with his, you know, early T. He, he's 16 <laughs> and dismisses Lord Manderley. By the way, the Manderley parallel is a thing, too, because we have right now the situation in the North. Um, Wyman Manderley is obviously working behind the scenes and positioning himself to be like Rickon's regent or something like that, just to be a, a big, powerful player in the game going forward. Meanwhile, the the last regent of Aegon Third was Theomar Manderley, who was also a, a big guy, you know, and... Uh, has a lot of parallels to Wyman. Of course, we we see that the the tradition of large Manderleys is is a, a thing. <laughs> awesome! Wow, that was tremendous. Um, and of course, I've been obviously enjoying your series lately of doing the question of you know listing a description of somebody and saying who am I? But there's really two answers. I love that because it highlights the fact that George uses so many parallel arcs and and symbolisms through through his different characters and stuff. So yeah really digging that and i'm digging the fact that the entire fandom is like just tuning more into the idea that there are repeating patterns even if they're not saying you know archetype and mytheme and stuff like that it's the same idea like people are picking up on these parallel characters all over the place i think it's awesome. kind of important too because there is a section of the fandom it's not like us obviously not people here people who are in this stream are a little wishy-washy or outright don't like this all the fake history so i think it's kind of important to show people that hey there's a lot in here this is this does relate to a song of ice and fire it's got it has serious predictive power to tell us what's coming as well as just being fun i mean that's the part maybe you can't convince them of but if you get them on track with the foreshadowing they may you, know, you might find more people realize what value it has so i think that's cool uh, yeah, totally. And I that, I couldn't have said it better myself. I was making that same argument about the world of ice and fire after it came out. Be like, hey, guys, these stories from the Far East about the Great Empire of the Dawn, it's not just like <laughs> filler that George whipped out for the heck of it. Like he's hiding some nuggets here, guys. And there was this little hardened nod of skeptics that are like, oh, those are just a coffee table book. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And there are some people reviewing Fire and Blood. They're like, oh, he just fallen in love with his own history. Blah, blah. Like, no, dude. <laughs> These are important clues that he's dropping now in the series. Just like he used Duncan Egg to drop clues about Bloodraven before Bloodraven appeared, he's telling us what these dragon fights are going to be like before he gives us a dragon fight. I mean, that's one of the things he's been doing in Princess and the Queen and the Rogue Prince and Dance of the Dragons is like, here's what happens. You know, it's a lot of bad things. Nobody wins. Like, now we know what yeah. to expect. If two dragons fight, everyone's probably going to die or end up all fucked up and burned and broken and shit. And, and to your point as well, it's maybe not the best place to say this because I'm preaching to the choir here, but The World of Ice and Fire maybe gave people the wrong impression. I love that book. I think it's great. It's a super reference. But it was George's first attempt at writing his fake history in his style of in-world, which is kind of different than the way just about any other author would do it. But he improved on that process. This book is just a lot more readable. It's got more dialogue, more characters, just it's it's a more entertaining book, which I think, to be fair, some people say that The World of Ice and Fire is a little dry. 
And I, you know, I can kind of see that. I, I, it's a page turner for me, but I can understand that for a lot of people, it's not. This one is, though. I think that's it's hard to make the case that this book isn't really just fun on its own merits, because uh, it's so more that, of a, it's more stories than history. It's 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 history, but presented as stories rather than um, an accounting of what happened. That's a very good point, and I think that we can really see. Uh, that the world of ice and fire and even the princess and the queen and sons of the dragon and stuff, that those were edited and summarized. And the, this is the full narrative version, uh, or at least to the extent that George intends it to be a narrative. And it was much more enjoyable. It had a lot more details that made some of these characters feel like more characters. You spent more time with the characters. So you got to know them a little better. You saw them at multiple points in their life. Like I, the sea snake is, much more of a colorful figure to me now, as well as you know, Visenya, I mentioned. Visenya is becoming a lot more three-dimensional now as we find out more about her entire life. So the, the World of Ice and Fire was very edited down, all the Targaryen history, and just summarized. And it just was not as, doesn't grab you as much. I totally agree. The Targ, the targ history in the World of Ice and Fire, it's just like a Wikipedia page almost. So this was a lot more enjoyable. There's a lot of stories, like we mentioned, Alyssa Farman and some other ones where you were really grabbed by the drama of what was going on. Uh, you felt for the characters. I really felt a lot for Aegon Dragonsbane, um, just being, you know, seeing all the horrors and then being a pawn with all these nasty regents and mean old uh, guy from Starpike. What's his name? Unwin. Uh, the Peaks. Unwin they're, Peak. they're... Like, what a dick, yeah. dude. That guy is like... <laughs> abusive father central you know like just totally gives you that vibe um and so you, you really felt for Aegon, uh, and then his poor wife committed suicide or was murdered um so yeah i don't know L lot, just to your point it was very much more engaging and uh there's a lot more character stuff to sort of sink your teeth into emma and melanie comments meta comments on the how you enjoyed the book and the the writing conceits and that kind of thing yeah, I definitely, I, I think you guys pretty much summed up everything that I thought about. I mean, instead of getting just like these really short little vignettes and, and um, that I, I felt like the world of ice and fire was like just these little quick snippets from all around Planetos. And I think that this was a little bit more relaxed and more fleshed out and to me more enjoyable because it was more of a narrative. I mean, it was still kind of compartmentalized, but more of a narrative. Yeah. Yep, it was fun. It was I fun. I liked um, how they would introduce a character and then you wouldn't hear about them a little bit and then it would come back to like like their story. Um, like I'm thinking of... Uh, I know just what you mean he, where, where George will be like, well, there was this person and we want to talk to you about that. Yeah. But first we have to tell you this. Yeah, and then they would come back and describe, like, all of the different Targaryens. Like, if, like, Jaehaerys and Alysanne aren't even, like, really discussed until way later in the book, and then they start to give you Alysanne's character, and they tell you her backstory. So I like the way it was formatted like that, because it felt way more engaging than uh, just a list of dry histories. <laughs> so. Cool. And uh, just a moment ago, we were talking about castration. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's always a fun lead in. Um, so and we were also talking about uh, usurpation and stuff like that. So we should give a quick shout out to Baal the Bard, who has a cool uh, essay and YouTube video about the Amethyst Empress as an archetype. 
uh, as sort of a displaced woman, a usurped queen archetype. And I'm looking for the link. Melanie, can you, um, you're quicker at this than me. Can you, can you pull it up? She's working on it. Thank you. Cool. Uh, and once again, I'll remind you, Crowfood's daughter's new, uh, new one about the Dothraki Sea is one you should check out. That's the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. And yeah. uh, Joe Magician did a cool live stream yesterday about Night's King, which I have not had a chance to get back and watch, but that's about Night Fort. And I think he's got some predictions, not only studying the, the past horrors, but predicting the future. Sandra, you could probably tell us you were there for that uh, stream. Tell us... Uh, Sell, sell, sell everyone on Joe's uh, live stream from yesterday. Well, we discussed the Night Fort and John when he's resurrected and how he will come back, possibly more wolf than man. And it's a combination of a uh, bookshelf stud essay that he wrote a long time ago and um, Matt's own original kind of theories about Mad Axe John is what we were calling him yesterday. Mm. Oh, I um, see. Okay, I'll I'm follow. not gonna. I'm not gonna feed all the details because you all should go listen to it. It's a good stream. So. Well, the night fort. All you have to say is night fort. Night fort. It's pretty much like crack. Like if you're not interested in the night fort, then you're not a fantasy fan. I don't know what to say about that. Night fort. Uh, so that's the Joe Magician YouTube channel. Um, and Aziz, you mentioned you got the uh, the uh, what'd you do? Um, Nymeria. Which is the one you put out just now? We just put out Nymeria Part Two, Ten Thousand Ships yesterday. It's uh, it's it's a, it goes from. The, the point at which Nymeria and the Rhoyna are fleeing, they go, Pat, we talk a lot about the Basilisk Isles and then Sothorios itself and they're all the different cities they tried to found or repurpose and the history of those cities and those places and then talk a lot about wyverns and brindled men and all the diseases and cool stuff like that. And then Nath and uh, the Summer Islands, as well as talking about the characters, the relevant characters from there. There's a good bit on Masande and Masande's brothers, um, <clears throat> stuff like that. Yeah, so that was really fun. And that's just fresh off, uh, fresh out. Only about 36 hours ago that came out. Very, very and, cool. Uh, after that, we'll be working on Fire and Blood quite a lot. We're, do, we're collaborating with Radio Westeros so to do a Dance of the Dragons uh, series. And uh, I've got that Kagasos thing that I mentioned, the blood magic stuff. Hybrid horrors or something like that, I'll call it. I don't know yet. <laughs> but some sort of a cool blood magic name, right? <laughs> yeah, let me know if you uh, need any help with that one. Uh, yeah, and then, of course, I really will. We've got uh, Melanie Lot 7 with her King Under the Mountain essay. Like I said, I was teasing. We're going to do, I think it's going to be the subject of an upcoming Mythhead roundtable type event. So we can talk about it a little further. Not only have you got this one episode, you got notes for other stuff. So that is coming from Melanie Lot 7. And Archmaester Emma is hard at work deciphering symbolism of red fire and working on her youtube channel which will be coming and of course as i've said a couple times now emma whenever you do launch your channel i will of course feature you on whatever episode i'm doing and give you a nice little push a little push on the swing if you will so you got one more super chat ah jojo lady dane Vic's death involved worms. Okay, Jojo, Lady Dane, you want me to talk about it? All right, so <laughs> I, I hate I'm. It's weird. I'm gonna stop. It's tricky. I'm gonna, it is. It's tricky. Okay, so the, there's a description between there's the port crackling and the blackened skin description of um, uh, what's her name? Araya. Araya. Uh, when she so. Right before she dies and right before the worms pop out of her, you know, her first her skin is red. She's cooking. It's hot to the touch. 
And at the end, it blackens and it looks like pork crackling, the maester says. Um, so Victorian's arm also looks like pork crackling and it's also blackened. And it's obviously, it's like smoking and stuff. So there's obviously like fire magic going on there. And so some people have wondered, is there a connection? Did Makoro put little fireworms in his arm? And is that what's happening there? So I, I being the negative Nilly uh, that I am, was saying, no, I don't think so. Primarily because uh, Araya's skin only looks blackened like that at the very last stage of her life when she's dying. And Victarion is not dying. His arm is stronger, and it doesn't seem to be progressively going from red to black. Like, it's black and, and, and like that, and it just is that way. It doesn't seem to be changing. And he doesn't have an early stage of fireworms because the early stages of fireworms, or whatever these things are, don't give you black skin. That doesn't happen till the end. Also, I think if there were things wriggling inside of his arm, uh, people would notice because he's in close contact with all the ironborn and it's it's said that they notice his arm but there's no talk of worms so i don't think there's any worms in his arm but i do think we're consistently shown that the fire like if you compare it to the dragon binder horn he was all burnt up inside too so like when people try to use fire magic it doesn't always work and they end up burnt i no matter what it is I, i'd say that's the parallel but yeah and makoro has been really accurate and powerful with his magic and his predictions so he seems to have more skill and uh it seems I, I agree with you it's some sort it seems like some sort of overlap rather than a direct parallel but a similar kind of concept like if if area was affected by the magical fallout zone that is now Valyria, which would be similar to what's going on east of Ashai with the shadow. It's uh, clearly magical stuff has ruined the landscape there as far as the rivers and there's no kids. I mean, that's magic, right? And then there, so Valyria's have some sort of thing happen there as well. And um, that has, it's almost like radiation where it just creates these random, these mutate constant mutations. And, uh, so I think there is a relationship because it's the there it's the, the descriptions are too similar in ways that don't match with anything else. But I agree with LML's breakdown that there's some things that are too different as well that you can't really get around. Um, so I think it's like Valyrian fire magic probably had capabilities like what Makoro has done for Victorian, um, and maybe in Erea's case she was affected by like multiple types of magic and multiple types of things and so she got the the fever she also got these things inside her and she also got uh, who knows um whatever happened to balerian was another thing you know with the with the long nine foot scar or scratch whatever it is so clearly multiple things happened to them i, I think because whatever did that nine foot scar isn't the thing that put worms inside area probably i mean maybe it's yeah no that's, that doesn't that's seem likely like right that sounds like another dragon. I mean, I don't, I can't think of anything else or some other monstrous thing with a giant claw right? that can yeah. potentially so, fight off the black dread. But it's it's very consistent with another dragon wound because frequently they yeah. grab each other and they try to rake each other's bellies with their with their legs. So yeah. So I think it's like she was hit by like a, a broad spectrum of of blood magic and magical fallout, whereas Victorian had this very concentrated particular spell cast on his arm only so i think there's a relationship but it's like a hundred to one you know like victorians is the small one and what happened to array is like this massively blown up version with multiple types of magic and unintentional side effects yeah because it wasn't no one cast that on her it just she was affected somehow yeah you know? i don't, I don't, I don't think, think there's a sorcerer behind it 
I don't think Makoro carries around a little glass vial with little baby like fireworms, and he like <laughs> he he know. slipped them into an open wound in his hand when he right. was looking. <laughs> Sleight of hand. I have to say, like at first when I first read it, and uh, on Twitter, I think Jojo, Jojo Lady Dane was talking about this whole subject, and it got me thinking about leeches and all the times leeches are used, and like it made me think of leeches gone wrong, but. Mm. I, yeah, ugh. um, but I don't think you know. Now, now that I've thought about it for a while, I'm like, nah, no, it's not a case of fire leeches gone wrong or magical fire leeches gone wrong. It's it's just something else entirely. It's bad. I tend to think so. Um, but the weirdest part is the the faces and the hands on the worms. But I think that's supposed to be a clue that, like I said, this is some sort of the result of them trying to crossbreed people and dragons. And this was one of the accidental side, you know, create, you know, kill me kind of creations of it all. So, all right. Well, um, do we have any final requests? San Rixian, do you have any topics that you would like to discuss that we have not mentioned? Oh no, we've talked about dragons plenty for me. Thank you. And I've had the screen locked on your drawing for the last 15 minutes or so. So we're checking it out. Do you want to zoom out and show us uh, sort of what's going on here in the totality? Yeah, I lost a little bit of the detailing I had spent on Silverwing when the power went out. But um, I decided to paint Burn Thornstead and kind of lay out rough colors for Alsane and Jaharis's riding outfits. Because these are the things I think about, guys. Riding outfits. <laughs> Oh, they need neither one have saddles, I see. They're barebacking it, huh? Well, um, they've been riding for most of their lives, so I feel like they can. Oh, okay. I see. I'm dodging that pun. <laughs> uh, well, I, I only mention that because I do think it's gonna be the whole idea of Tyrion making saddles and Danny needing to armor her dragons and stuff. Like I think that's a logical thing that George wants us to think about when he's showing us how vulnerable dragons can be from different kinds of attacks. So I mean, just I, speaking from my own personal like universe and designing like saddles and things i have designed saddles for targaryen dragons before and i have drawings of them it's just like i think it's definitely gonna happen um but danny doesn't seem to need a saddle in the show yet so who knows i think it'll happen well this is beautiful by the way i again i love the the feel of the dragons is really strong uh here i love they you can sort of see them intertwining and dancing with each other like i was saying it's pretty cool and if i know you and the way that you do your layering by the time you're done with your final like highlights and lighting you'll probably bring out some of the bronze shine of vermithor oh, yeah yeah so. he was described as burnished bronze which i just thought was so nice yeah that caught I'm just me. starting to get used to your process so i know how your layers go like you do the <laughs> under layer then you add stuff on top and you're learning yes well well, but uh, yes, okay, so we, um, like I said, uh, last call or final thoughts on the uh, anything in Fire and Blood before we head out. Um, what about the dragon skin cloaks made from Taraxi's wings by the followers of the Shepherd? That's pretty cool. Well, that was, yeah, that was surprising and unexpected. <laughs> or the dragon, uh, who are the, the the protectors of the dragon pit? They were called, uh, what oh, were yeah, called? the dragon, dragon keepers. keepers. Yeah, that was a little surprising, but seven, 77 it said of them. That's kind of cool. So who can tell me, class, who can tell me what the dragon keepers symbolize? The keepers of the moon. 
Mm-hmm. More specifically, I'm. Dad, don't get mad. So they they they're called the Dragon Keepers. They wear black armor. They live in the Dragon Pit. Okay, so I should know this. Sorry. Yeah. It, well, you know how I always compare the Night's Watch. I knew you were going at Night's Watch. Uh, hang on. So the Night's Watch, Shadow Babies. And the idea of like black meteors, black swords, and black dragons, they're all kind of similar. And essentially, um, for example, in Signs and Portals, Sansa, fleeing the Purple Wedding, ran through the cellars of the Red Keep and passed the empty suits, the hollow knights of dragon armor. Uh, And she ran by with her torch, and it made the hollow knights seem to come to life. And so that was tying in the hollow knights uh, epithet of barracks, followers who are analogous to night's watch and that was tying it to them to dragon armor and i always say that the night's watch basically has that black dragon symbolism they use fire they use dragon glass or valerian steel if they can get it so these dragon keepers are just another version of the black knights that oppose the white knights they're combining dragon armor and they wear black like the night's watch they keep the dragons um they're sort of an opposite to the king's guard the King's Guard are parallel to the others, yada, yada, yada. So I just saw that as another analog to that whole idea. Works for me. There you go. Uh, let's see what else. I'm looking through my notes here. Uh, somebody said that uh, there was a line about dragon seeds being spent in the wood pile, which was cool. Because that gives you the idea of like the dragon going into the tree. And let's see here. Oh, when Joffrey Targaryen fell off Syrax, it was some obvious moon meteor symbolism. Not only a dragon falling from the sky, uh, but the roof tiles fell like knives and then and stabbed him. So you got some, got some falling meteor knives there. And the sword was said to stab him too. So that was pretty cool. And then somebody pulled the sword out like they were pulling a sword out of a moon meteor kind of a thing. We had a couple of white knights that caught on fire, which gives you flaming white sword symbolism. Uh, Glendon Good caught on fire. There's a couple other ones. But of course, the burning knight, but we knew that one already. That was... mm-hmm, the burning knight. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, Boris Baratheon's death was uh, quite interesting as well in that he, um, Lord Kermit Tully, so he's a green frogman, Um kills Lord Boros Baratheon. Um, uh, Lord Baratheon says, I'd sooner dance in hell than wear your chains, and then charges straight into the spiked iron ball at the end of Lord Kermit's morning star, which took him full in the face in a grisly spray of blood and bone and brain. And, of course, the uh, wildlings, when they're burning the old gods, they give over sprays of blood and bone, weirwood branches. Right, and blood and bone in general is pretty reliable weirwood symbolism so you've got the morning star uh the green man summoning it or calling it and then you got the horned lord tree man getting merged with the tree turning into blood and bone so yep yep um not and easy then, being green it's, <laughs> not easy <laughs> being green that's kermit of, kermit tully yep. oh yeah speaking of being <laughs> Speaking of being green, I noticed a lot of the male characters were showing us the Holly Oak King transformation and just like being mm-hmm. green in the beginning. Like I know that uh, Roger Baratheon was um, and some of the Targaryen Kings too. Like it, it was talking about how they were young and green. And then 
as time passed, they became old and gray. Oh, yeah. So Aegon II, who rode Sunfire, is a great example of that. Um, he His dragon gets the one-eye symbolism. Uh, Aegon himself is burned, and he's drowned in the milk of the poppy, and then he comes back, um, and he is all he's gray and ashen. So he's like a gray king uh, figure, you know, with the ash tree symbolism thrown in. Gaunt, so that's cool. I noticed too. A lot of times Gaunt. they describe. Yeah. He's also Joffrey. <laughs> oh, and he's got a withered wooden leg. Uh, one of his one of his broken yeah. legs is withered like a stick. So that's more green seer stuff. Stick leg. Yeah, he he has a uh, he has a lot of the. Um, a lot of parallels to yeah like i said to joffrey but just the same as which makes me think of joffrey uh the one who fell off of cyrax which is like uh her rainier's third born um child and that's uh cersei's third born child at least on tv falls to his death yeah, yeah. And, and then there's all that moon door stuff yep <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty pretty striking. The egg on the second Joffrey stuff. He's got you got killed by poison given by his own counselors. You've got uh, becomes king because his mother uh, changes the succession, and he wasn't really that interested. He was just like, oh yeah, okay, I'm king now, you know. And uh, then you have um, just him being really shitty and cruel, <laughs> all that. You know, let's throw that in there too. And there's more, but uh, yeah, that's a whole other topic. Aziz, <laughs> what do you think about um, we finding out the origin of placing the dragon's eggs in the cradle? That was pretty interesting. Oh, that was cool because that was actually like, I'll, I'll give myself a small pat on the bat for that one because I I'd sort of predicted that, that it was a new thing. Um, so having it confirmed specifically to the person who originated it was very nice. They were left very left little very little doubt there because we didn't have any stories of dragon eggs and cradles before. And there was like Magor and Anis. Anis was Givens uh, Quicksilver, a hatchling. So it's specifically described that way. And, and Magor, you know, didn't bond with anybody until Balerion. And then Aemond One-Eye didn't bond with someone until Vagar. So there was like, yeah, there wasn't any much hint of that. So that was, that was cool. I'm, I'm glad to see that tied, like, all tied up and, and given a, a nice front and end. <laughs> I, 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 again, to go back to that freaky one where they get the muta- mutated dragon that attacks the baby. It's like, ooh. Because I've heard Whoa. people wonder about that. Like, is it really safe to put dragon's eggs in the cradle? Like, well, maybe not. <laughs> apparently not. Yeah, apparently every once in a while they bite a whole piece of the arm off. <laughs> yeah, but hey, uh, who did it, right? What's who that? Was the first, who was the first was one Raina. to do it? Targaryen. Yeah. Okay. She put it in her Jaehaerys and uh, uh, Alisane's cradles. When they were babies, that did kill one of my one of my an old tinfoil theory I had, which was that the the dragon egg. If you put an egg in the cradle, the egg acquires the personality of the of the rider of the future rider, and that would explain the cannibal that Magor. That would have been Magor's egg that that hatched and then just left him. But that's no, that theory doesn't work anymore. <laughs> but that's a cool, uh, that's a very interesting theory though, but it could explain the deep bond between some of the dragons and um, the ones who are placed in the cradle, like Silverwing and Vermithor um, are really, really, really bonded to Alisane and Jaehaerys at least. It seems I, so. I'm, I'm, I'm holding back the urge to sing cats in the cradle by the thinnest of margins. Cats I just, in the no. Do it. No, the whole the point is restraint. Anyways, uh, so um, Melanie Lot 7, Painkiller Jane is bringing up something cool in the chat about Andrew Farman as a failed green seer. Yeah. Um, can I can I jump in real quick to say I got to leave? I have to, I, 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 it's been amazing, but um, 
I have a few birthday things going on that I have that's to cool. It's only been three hours now. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. Three fifteen is a good good contribution. Yeah. Yep. I, <laughs> this I'm, has been super fun. Cool, man. Yeah. When I go when I see um one of the four twenties in sight, I usually press forward to that and then press the stop button. So we're coming up <laughs> on four four twenty mountain time. Cool. So we got seven more minutes. But yeah, go ahead and peace out and say every goodbye, everyone. Of course, we know where to find you. Yeah. History of Westeros podcast. Happy birthday, Aziz. Thank you, Thank you very you. much for joining great. us today. Thanks. It was a great Thanks. pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate the invite. Appreciate everyone showing up in the chat. There's a lot of people with great con- uh, great convos and great questions. And of course, my fellow uh, co- uh, co-panelists here, everybody was awesome. And we all are learning so much. And this is this is what it's all about, going into the new the fun material, our new fun new material. So this is Will the height have, of our fandom. <laughs> I assume you'll have some Fire and Blood stuff coming on your channel too? Yeah, we haven't announced today our first live stream yet, but I want to I want to I read it for the first time through without taking any notes. It's a shame I took a ton of notes, but I just wanted to read it as a fan first. I'm going through it the second time, taking lots of notes and then so I imagine it'll be about 7 to 10 days. Probably like the first week of December we'll announce a live stream. It'll it'll be likely during the week um rather than on a weekend, but we'll see. So yeah, keep an eye out for that and um can't wait to do that. Cool. Well, we're just going to say a little bit about House Farming and wrap it up, but uh thank you Aziz and uh, enjoy your birthday. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. See y'all soon. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So, House Farman, House, House Words are the wind, our steed. So, that's crazy. Riding yes. the wind. Um, they, <laughs> House Farman has the White Tower. I already mentioned that. They're on an island, which gives you the whole Mist of Avalon, Isle of Avalon kind of thing. Um, he ends his life by trying to fly and. S- he falls but he says oh i can fly and then jumps out the window which makes you think of bran flying and falling in his dream and the uh other singers that are impaled on ice spires at the bottom the people who died instead of flying like andrew farman so absolutely took the words out of my mouth yeah oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that (laughs) there must be more words come on okay more words Yes. Um, Andrew Farman was also stuck in a lavender wedding where he was so unhappy and nobody gave him any love. Poor guy. He just had this, you know, really banal existence and just moped around. And so like that part of it was really sad. But yeah, he was definitely a failed green seer. And the the line that you mentioned about, I can fly too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's just like um, you know, making the bad man fly by pushing him out of the moon door. It's the exact same symbolism, and um, I think that that whole idea of falling falling into an icy death is essentially symbolic for other transformation. Whether it's being impaled on ice spires or falling into a frozen lake, you know, it's just the Lucifer uh, frozen lake symbolism. Yeah. So, yeah. So the failed green seer, meaning like a green seer who turned into like a knight's king. Or like an othery type of figure. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Emma? Or, or maybe one who didn't fly at all. If we're looking at it from Euron's standpoint, where he was also kind of a failed green seer. Yeah, I guess that's true. We don't. There's a couple ideas that could could qualify as quote failed green seer. So, and uh, Reyna, of course, does have sort of a her blue dragon dreamfire. So that sort of means that Andrew has wed a. Um, sort of blue dragon queen, which then brings in all the extra potentially other style symbolism um, as well. Totally. And the thing I love about Dreamfire, it was a pale blue dragon with cobalt flame. 
is that uh, dream fire makes me think of the blue and silver fire swords that Jamie and Brienne wield in Jamie's weirwood stump dream. Not only are those dream fire swords, but they're tied to weirwoods. And of course, the whole white sword symbolism can potentially relate to weirwoods. And so you've got Farman with the white tower and the green, the icy green seer symbolism. So to me, that sort of fits with the whole dream fire. To, to me, I think the whole Dawn is connected to the weirwoods in some way. I'm not sure what, you know, obviously they're both weirwoods turned to pale stone. Dawn was made from a pale stone. We've all the comparisons about the others being similar to Dawn also bounce off of weirwoods. They're all pale white and milky. These, the weirwood face called the black gate shines with milk and moonlight, which is a lot like Dawn made of milk glass and alive with light. Uh, so there's some sort of connection there with ice swords and Dawn and weirwoods. And I'm not sure what it is because I haven't gotten around to digging it up yet. Um, but I know a few people are onto that. And I think that is what's going on here, I guess I would say. Nothing burns like the cold. Exactly. Dream fire. That's what dream fire is. It's cobalt, blue flame. So it's like the others. You could just say it that way. Like the others have cold blue star fire. It's the only place we see blue fire. And then we've got, um, you know, dream fire, a blue dragon, and Tessarion, a blue dragon who's called the blue queen, as opposed to Melisandre as a red queen. So it's all pretty consistent to me. But it is 420 Mountain Time. So let's t- check in with Sanrixian's drawing one last time here and see where we're at. San, it looks like you're going to be working on this one a little while longer, huh? Yeah, this is a very complicated one. I got a lot of painting to do on this one, so. Stupid dragon scales. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always do it to myself, too. I'm like, I'm not going to draw all the scales this time. And then I'm like, I can't not draw all the scales. <laughs> it's not the same. But, yeah, I really like their faces. This is my favorite part so far. I can tell you that this is going to be a fan favorite by the time it's done. Everyone loves Jaharis and Alisan, and it's nice. I'm glad we picked the one, like, with all the scenes of dragons killing each other, we found two dragons in love. I like it. Yes, that's what I wanted to do today. (laughs) I wanted to distract everyone from the horrifying worms and death scenes (laughs) and nether lips with pretty dragons in love. Yeah, I didn't ask you to draw worms coming out of smoking nether lips. No, we wouldn't. Who wouldn't do that? That's a different stream. Oh, that's and a, your bonus. Yeah, hopefully that's nobody's stream. Ah, uh, yes, cock of the moon. Here we go. Magic powder to make your maidens fertile. One shake <laughs> is all it takes. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Just put me in the shame cube. Bro. <laughs> I'm entertained. It's great. <laughs> if you're in the shame cube, you're on top. Of, you're sitting in a throne on the shame cube. That's uh <laughs> And we all know what throne that is. Boom. Okay. All right. <laughs> the cess throne, porcelain cess yes. throne. No, it's great. It's beautiful, Sanry. I like it. Um, and yeah, Jaharis is said to wear green, isn't he? I forgot about that. Well, I was just thinking, yeah. Yeah. The green and it matches the bronze nicely. So, you know. Cool. Well, it's lovely. And thank you, as always, for. Um, uh, oh, Sean E is trying to buy, oh, buy the uh, Cock of the Moon picture from you. I will post uh-huh. it on the internet and you can do with it what you will. I don't control your printer, Sean. <laughs> yes, you can do you can do what you will with the cock of the moon in the privacy of your own house. Nobody <laughs> will know. So 
There you go. All right. Well, we've already said what's upcoming, but everybody give your websites and where to find you real quick before we jump out, starting with you, Sanry, since you're here. Um, you. Just uh, find me at Sanrixian on Twitter, sanrixian.com. And the calendar is the biggest thing that I have upcoming, which there should be an announcement within a week about that. So keep your eyes open. Follow my Twitter. Easiest place to find me. Either one of you ladies, feel free. Go, Emma, go. Red Mice at Play um, WordPress, uh, which is redmiceatplay.wordpress.com. Um, and I'm currently working on fire symbolism, um, just finishing up the Red Fire essay. I think I've got it worked out. I just need to find out how to sort of summarize pretty much every single one of LML's essays to fit inside the Red Fire essay, which is currently <laughs> the major issue I'm having at the moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually there's like your basic bloodstone um, stuff and then there's the uh, werewolf compendium needs to go in there and the dragon locked in ice. And I, I don't, yeah, it's a monster. Um, so that's why it's uh, currently taking so long. Yeah, blame George. That's all I can say. Blame George. Not my fault. <laughs> it's, people complain about the length of my stuff, and I'm just like, man, I don't know. It takes that long to follow all of George's symbolism. Blame him. The books are long. But uh, yeah, anyways, well, we'll look forward to that. And like I said, um, you know, I'll be sure to have you on whenever you uh, publish that. It's like I do with all the myth heads. Spread the love. Bring. Uh, I love. Honestly, I love doing that. I love bringing attention to other people's content uh, because everyone loves that. You know, the recommendations getting uh, getting turned on to new content and stuff. So that's how we do it. It's how we knit the community together. <laughs> In any case, uh, Melanie Lot 7, your YouTube channel is named Melanie Lot 7, correct? It is. It is. Um, I'll post the link in the chat and you can find me on Twitter at Melanie Lot 7, 7 being the number not spelled out. And yeah, come find me on there because I'm on there a lot. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys. And of course, you can find my podcast in your podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. It's called The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, in case you didn't know. LucifermeansLightbringer.com is where you can find all of my material. And uh, by the way, I will have a Between Two Weirwoods episode coming very soon. Uh, a little announcement here. So in addition to doing uh, panels, which I'm going to continue to do, I'm also going to start doing one-on-one -on -one almost like interview discussions with content creators. And the first one's going to be with gray area. And essentially what it will be is I'll have gray area on. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about her, you know, how she got into the fandom and how she got her channel going and stuff like that a little bit. But then what I'll do is we'll get into some of her biggest videos and theories and we'll discuss them because I always have ideas when I watch other people's videos. And frequently since I've got this, sort of more symbolic lens that I like to apply and that we myth heads like to apply. Most other people are looking at the story with symbolism only like a little bit on the margins or primarily they're looking at the sort of the main story and analyzing it. So I think there's a lot of fertile ground uh, for me to essentially have somebody on like say Robert from In Deep Geek, Gray Area um, or Melanie Lot 7 with her, uh, with her King Under the Mountain episode and essentially do, although I guess I should separate that. I think Melanie's thing is going to be a panel since that's such a fun myth head idea. We'll have a bunch of people on. But what I'm going to do is, is um, another one is, uh, well, I won't make any announcements ahead of time, but definitely Robert from In Deep Geek, 
gray area and I'll, I'll probably, I'm sure I'll kind of zease into doing it. Uh, and what it'll do, like I said, we'll go over some of their cool theories and we will discuss them and I'll add sort of the symbolic layers if I can add to their theory and we'll just use it as a jumping point and just do like a one-on-one discussion. So that'll be fun. And uh, yeah, so uh, the one with gray area is either going to be next week or the week after. And whichever week isn't that, it will be a follow-up Q&A to discuss the backwards prologue, which was a big brain scrambler and also gave us a lot of new ideas about how the long night might have played out and stuff like that, which is ripe for discussion. So that's what's coming your way the next two Starry Wisdom Sundays. One of them will be Between Two Weirwoods. Inside the actor's studio, somebody's suggesting. Yeah, I'm not sure what the name will be. It'll probably just be between two weirwoods, like with gray area or conversations with gray area. I don't know what it'll call it, but it'll be something like that. And then uh, we'll do the we'll do the Q and A timeline on the backwards prologue. So that's what's coming your way. And patrons can also look forward to seeing the Jamie and Brienne uh, thing come out this week. I've almost got it done, but obviously I had to put it down to do all the fire and blood like pounding the audiobook in my head, like over and over and over and over. So a discourse with the dragon, Sandrick scene suggests. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, yeah, so Emmett's another one I'd like to get on. Although, by the way, Jojo Lady Dane, I did have Emmett on with a Night's King Apocalypse live stream a few months ago, and we did talk about his Eldritch Apocalypse and the Euron thing uh, quite a bit. So, But yeah, I'm sure he's excited about the Krakens uh, that we cited for sure, of course. So... That's it, uh, guys. I'll give you one last chance to say goodbye, but that's it. Let's uh, let's do it. See ya. Bye, Bye everybody. Have a great one. And uh, thank you all, of course, for joining me. All right. Bye, guys. Stop. Bro.